Fashionably late as always. This is pretty good for me. Yeah. Eight minutes. Uh, well, you guys you guys do the live thing on ATP, so you've got to be on time because people are sitting there hitting refresh on the on the website. That's not why we're on time. <laughs> why are you on time? Self-respect, I guess. <laughs> Standards. We're East Coast people. You're an East Coast person too. You're supposed to be representing for us. Instead, you're uh, you go into uh, Las Vegas mode. I don't think it's that bad, but it is sort of a West Coast personality trait. Uh, the West Coast move, uh, which is also your move, is like uh, it, it, nine o'clock rolls around or whatever time we're doing, and you realize, oh, I forgot about that, and you immediately uh, petition for a fifteen minute delay, <laughs> and then you have a five minute delay after the fifteen minute delay. It's all right. Makes you endearing. Oh, you sound like you're in a good mood. Yeah, sure. Sure, why not? It's been a busy week. Uh, So I finished listening to probably an episode behind, though, because you guys probably recorded last night. For context, we are recording right now. It's Thursday, October 23rd. You guys probably did an ATP last night, but it's not out yet. So I might be behind. But I did listen to last week's show where you talked about your... uh, Yosemite review. We talked more about it yesterday in yesterday's uh, episode as well. So, yeah, well, I'll try not to. Well, if 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 we venture into duplicating the same story territory, you can just interrupt me and say, you know what, listen to ATP because I want to do. You know, it's no use wasting people's time. I'll say the same things twice. I don't care. Like the <laughs> the, the thing with all podcasts is, and you know, this is kind of like. It's like a first draft of what your thoughts are, and you just kind of on the spot, and then you start thinking about it, and you start talking about it, and you. You know, at least I do. I kind of ramble, and it's like, given time to think about that, like I think I could say that again oh, better. Yeah. And then obviously the ultimate is you're like, oh, if I'm actually going to write it, I got to actually figure out what I really think. But just sort of, you know. Anyway, I, duplication, I don't yeah. mind. Give me a second chance to get it right. Yeah, totally. Um, in in a big picture, I was thinking about this. I don't know why, because I guess it's it's just the way the human mind works. But somehow, ten point ten feels like a milestone. You know, it's like ten, even though it's not. You know, it's actually the 11th major version, and it's the 12th, I guess, that you've reviewed because you did the public beta. How many How many Mac OS X reviews have you done? So, so I did Developer Preview 2, Developer Preview 3, Developer Preview 4, public beta, and then all the releases. And there was also one or two thrown in there that weren't really reviews. They were just like random, like, hey, I just went to Macworld, and here's some more stuff you might want to know about Aqua. and you know. But if you wanted to go by the releases, I started a DP2. Because, hmm. uh, yeah, and I... I don't remember. I think I played with DP1, but I definitely didn't write it up. So, hmm. uh, so I've been thinking about this, and you mentioned this on ATP. I don't want to get all maudlin, but there's a chance you're thinking that maybe this last one that you just published last week might be the last one you're going to do. You may not do next year's. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we can get into that a little bit later, but uh, you know, just thinking in, in this nice even round ten number, I do think that. Podcasts in general, and you having been doing one regularly, either ATP or uh, uh, what was your old show called? Hypercritical. Uh, uh, it, it it seems like forever, but it's not. Like, when did Hypercritical start? I think like 2011, maybe? Yeah, so Something it's only like a handful of years. But to me, there's this huge difference as you know, and you and I got to know each other. I don't even know when we first started emailing, but it was a long time before we met. But we are at least email before Daring Fireball started. 
because you were working at, you were still working I've told this story in ATP you gave me my first uh, copy of uh, BB edit or whatever the current version of it was out then like previously I had I had convinced work to buy it for my work but you worked at bare bones and said here you go here's a free copy of BB edit I was like oh awesome no wonder I lasted there so long <laughs> <laughs> yeah just giving away their software <laughs> to surefire customers uh yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we've known each other since before there was even Daring Fireball. And uh, and it's, you know, uh, our interests, our, our, our common first name, our, we, we, you know, the fact that we're, I think we're exactly the same age, even 1973. Close, you're, 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 you're older. Uh, I don't look older, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like the universe was, de- it was destined for us to, to know each other somehow. Like, it just seems like it. It just seems like no matter what, you know, how the dice had been rolled somewhere, you know, in the intervening years, we were going to get to know each other. It was a small world back then, like for the the Mac nerds on the web. It was just like it was we were all using IE5 and experimenting with CSS and reading Zeldman and uh, like hoping Apple doesn't go out of business. And before that, we were all reading, you know, Mac Week, which you talked about on uh, the last podcast and and Mac user and Mac world. Like it was such a small world. Like if we had all if we had both gone to the same Mac world conference, we probably would have bumped into it. Yeah, I think that's almost certain because it was it. It was they were small back then, or it was you know you, you you would inevitably meet everybody. You wouldn't have that. Yeah, you would you would see the same people year after year. It's not like WWDC where now it's like so crazy, and you go and it's like some of your best friends you don't even see them, and you're like, hey, I didn't even I didn't even run into so and so, and it's just a very different world. Um, but as someone who's always been a huge fan of of your work at ours, these these massive book length reviews. It's such a profound change um, now that you're podcasting because it used to be that John Syracuse as a as a brand was something you got sporadically, almost like on an annual schedule. You had to wait like a year in between. But when you did, it would be like a massive mainline dose. Uh, and how different it is now that you have a weekly outlet and we all get plenty of John Syracuse. It's so different, yeah. and it's 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 hard to imagine going back to that. Yeah, I had a, for a while at ours when they were doing like staff blogs or whatever. There was a period, and I'm always surprised when I go back and look at it. Like there was a period where I was blogging, as if you want to call it that, pretty regularly on the staff blog. Like I'm amazed at the number of things I wrote there. I forget what I even wrote. Like it's like you know, it's it's not the the volume that you put out right on a regular basis, but you know how it is where you can't even remember what the hell you wrote because it's just too yeah, much, right? Absolutely. And I. Of course, I remember all my reviews because those are big, punctuated things, and there's a few special stories in between there and retrospectives, and I did, like, a game review, and it's all sorts of crap, you know, but I can remember those. But then there was just, like, at one point, I was doing one or two pagers every couple of weeks uh, for ours, and I look back on that body of work, and I, I'm happy with it, and I like it. It's just that, like, it was never... It was it wasn't it was neither fish nor fowl. It wasn't what I do now, which is just sort of ramble on a weekly basis, where it's just off the cuff or whatever. And it certainly wasn't the big long lead up to a giant, you know, review. It was kind of in betweeny. And uh, I guess podcasting has totally filled that role now because I don't have you know Twitter and plus podcasting have destroyed my ability to blog. Not that I had much of an ability to do it uh, to begin with, but I, I may get back into it if I don't do these big reviews anymore. Yeah, I'm not sure that you're meant for it. I don't know. I feel like you've found your thing that is more... It's it's like the, 
I always say, like, to me, in everything in life, and as a general rule, it's the extremes where things are most interesting. Like, to me, like at Daring Fireball, the best posts are my linkless ones where I think of just one word to add or two words, you know, good luck with that or something like that. Um, or the big long ones, the thousand, multi thousand word pieces. It's when I have a post that's like 300 words, then I know I'm in trouble that I've, you know, I either should be able to make this point much more succinctly or I'm being lazy and I need to go deeper. And I feel like with you, it's, it's, you know, you found your, 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 uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this format and it's podcasting. It's not even that I'm not going to spend all the time with it. It's just sort of more like less prepared. It's like more, more thinking out loud and, you know, going back and forth. And the, the blog format, like if I didn't have an actual regular day job that took my time, I think I, the thing I like about that is not so much that any individual post is anything special, but that you sort of build up a body of work with like little reference points. Like very frequently I find myself, uh, thinking back to, you know, I wish I had something that I could point to about this. In podcasting, as you know, it's harder to like, it's harder to ask people to go, oh, go back to this thing. And like, you have to give them a timestamp and you have to look it up and find out where everything is. Whereas if I could just point to a blog post, oh, I talked about this specific issue in a one pager and you can get my take on it there. And individual one pagers, yeah, not a big deal, one or two pagers. But now that there's, you know, I have a few of them on hypercritical.co. I I refer to them frequently, and a lot of times I wish the things I had said and worked out on a podcast. Like I mean, you do the same thing, and so does Marco. Depend, you know, you either uh, write about it first and talk about it on a podcast, or talk about it first and that becomes a post for your website. And I find it frustrating that I can't point that like the podcasts are so invisible, yeah. like they're they're ephemeral, and you can't like point people into them because it seems like asking more than just having them read a paragraph or two on a, on a web page that you send them. So I do wish I had. Uh, more time to blog. Who knows if I even will? I don't know. Like I'm, I'm not not forcing myself to do it or whatever. But I think a lot of the reason that you know this is kind of where the blogging tailed off. Once the the OS 10 releases started coming out yearly, at first it was like there would just be a quiet period where I wouldn't write anything because I'm just doing the review, and then that quiet period expanded to like fill the whole year. And so it's like, well, I guess all I'm doing now is Twitter and worrying about writing my reviews. <sighs> well said. Um. How do you have you? How many words was your your Yosemite review? I think I asked you this last year too. It's like the same. You didn't read my about post because uh, you follow too many people on Twitter. It's like the same length as it was last year. Uh, I can't look up the number. It's on it's like twenty six k, twenty seven k, something like that. Hyper is that a hypercritical? Yeah. Is that a dot co. co? The com guy wants too much money. Oh, man. Well, that's what we got for the uh, Vesper. We got the dot co. Somehow it reads yep. right. I, I, I like I, somehow there's t top level domains are such a weird thing because a the whole thing is so gross and never should have been exposed to end users anyway. It's like file name extensions, um, but they've become part of you know our the world we live in. Dot uh, com is just invisible, right? As somebody has whatever dot com, and you just it's like the the nothing domain. Even though getting a dot com is incredible, incredibly difficult because everything—I mean, everything was taken by like the end of the '90s, let alone in the intervening years. Something about dot co, which is for people who don't know, it's uh, the the nation Colombia's top level domain. It reads like dot com, and it's like you notice it. I always notice yeah. it. I always, you know, but it has that same effect of like you just accept it. Like that's why I couldn't even remember the hypercritical TLD. 
It's kind of like a, you know, web 2.0-y, like Flickr, where you leave off the R, kind of like com, where you leave off the M, kind of uh, twee, sort of yeah. precious. It's <laughs> that version. I mean, really, I just got it because, you know, all the other extensions were worse. <laughs> I'm going to get .us, you know, .business, .plumbing, whatever. Uh, they're so bad. I, I just, uh, I can't. I can't believe some of those. Dot. But anyway, if if you went to the site, you'll see that this it's my like the format I've done for the right. past three years. It's just like a template, and I just changed the numbers like Mad Libs. Uh, and at the bottom, there's stats. Right. So twenty seven thousand words. What's the? I think that it's like the average size of a novel is somewhere around sixty thousand words, give or take. So it's you know it's truly book length. And yeah, the the, the weird thing to me is that the, my review settled in around this. 25 27k size for the past like three or four not through any conscious effort of my own but it's just that's how it worked out you know right and it's you know it's like that's about how much work they can do on an annual basis on mac os 10 and it's like it's more like that's how much i feel like i can or should write because there's more i could write about and every time i always feel like i basically ran out of time and i would like to have whole giant sections but I always like uh, I prioritize them. I say, well, yeah, I'm interested in that, and I think I could write another few thousand words about it. But would the value it adds to the review and the interest it adds to you be worth the time I put in? You know, and how much time I've got scheduled for this? Because really, even though I have so much lead up time to it, it still kind of compresses at the end. Because there's only so much you can write about when things don't work and they're and they're broken in a beta, and Apple hasn't made final decisions. You gotta, you know, the final bits have to come down, and then you have to scramble. Hmm. Um. So if we added them all together, what is it? And I know that the sizes are different for some of the old ones, but it's it's about 15 reviews, right? If we're talking about this is the 11th numbered version and you did, said you did DP2, DP3, DP4, so it's 14 or 15. It's an enormous body of work. It really, truly is. And I know that it's not one single piece of work that if you read them all back to back, there's some sort of repetition that would be going on because they follow a certain formula. Um, but I do think, I think it's such a, it's such an interesting testimony to have. And that like 20 years from now, when, when the youngins take over that they'll be out there for them to, to look at and remember, you know, where things are. That's what old people like to think, but young people won't give it to him. <laughs> they already don't. <laughs> They'll look back on our great works and tremble. And, oh, right. How often care. would we refer to a similarly detailed review of System 2 from 1985? Right, or, or the, the, you know, the Apple II OSs right. or anything like that. Or, you know, yeah, Somewhere know. somebody I mean, would need it, though. Uh, the thing that's brutal for me, though, is if I ever go back and look at those old ones, I just I can't stand it. Just like it's terrible. I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like I go look at my early writing. I'm like, holy cow, this is bad. Like just <laughs> bad in all ways. Like, I guess I knew like it was it was certainly more casual back then. And I was a worse writer. And the combination of the two was just and really, I don't know, like you didn't know what was important and what wasn't the things I focused on or just seem inane and. I have a lot of difficulty. A lot of people ask, like, oh, you're going to go back and collect all these together into one big thing. The most painful part of it would be that if I was to do that and you start reading it, you're going to start reading from stuff I wrote in 1999 that I think is not good. <laughs> it's just not good. <laughs> I mean, like, I hope I always feel that way. I kind of, you know, I kind of feel that way. Like, 
you know, you get, sort of get to a certain point and I just think everything I write is crap as soon as I write it and this, you know, I just make it as good as I can in the time allotted and move on. But it's like programming. Like if I don't, if I don't look back at the code I'm writing this year, like 10 years from now, if I don't look back at the code I'm writing this year and think it sucks, I have, that means I'm not improving. Right. I can totally see that. Um, I look back, I, I did learn this and there's a, I, whew, I'm going to, I'm going to get it wrong. I think it was, it was one of the great titans of modern computer science, either Kernigan or Ritchie or one of those, you know, Bell Labs guys who said something about that debugging is twice as hard as programming. And so if you write code as cleverly as you possibly can, you'll never be able to debug it because you'll need an, in, you know, you need an intellect twice as great. You need to, you need to write your own code. Like, like you're a halfwit so that when you debug it or when you, I, for me personally, it's when I return to it, that I can understand what the hell is going on. Yeah, I under I know that saying, and I understand the sentiment behind it. But the logic in the saying makes no sense, and it's mostly BS in the details. But in broad strokes, trying to say the idea is that uh, you know later you will come back to your own code and not understand it, and that is entirely true. And so the, what he's trying to say is to mitigate right. that. Don't try to don't make your life harder by doing things that are difficult to understand even now when you're in the midst of it. Right. And it in totally informed my use of comments is my comments. I used to, um, I used to only write, of course, cause I was a teenager and early twenties. And so of course I didn't want to write any comments at all. And I only did it because when like my CS professors, you know, you had to, if you submitted your work without comments, it was some, you know, you automatically lose like 10 points. Um, so I just, the comments were stupid. I would just write, you know, the, the, the smart ass teenagers comments, which is just restating the logic of each line. Yeah, as a comment. Add one to Right. Exactly. Whereas what, like the light that went on, even though I, I don't write much code anymore, but the, the light that went on eventually was comments are like time travel. You're talking to your future self who is utterly confused as to why you would do this seeming there's. This doesn't seem like it's necessary. Tell your future self, here's why you're doing this and why you want to keep doing it. And it's made my code, at least for my own self-maintenance, it's made it all the difference in the world. Yeah, there's a couple of phases of that. Like the early phases, everyone thinks, I don't need comments because I'm writing this now and I understand it and I'll understand it in the future. And the second phase is realizing that's not the case and you start trying to write comments, but you don't know what good comments are. And I think the third phase is finally realizing that if you write the code in a sensible way, you only need comments on the tricky parts and you should minimize that. And when you do need a comment on the tricky part, uh, you'll know like how to write it in a way that will be illuminating rather than stupid. Yeah, either the tricky part where you're doing something pretty clever and that it's, it's you know, a month goes by, it's going to be out of your head how you pulled that off because you're in the zone. Or for me, a lot of times it's the, um, you're working around something stupid and the workaround makes, if you didn't know about the stupid thing, the workaround looks like it's what, you know, why would you ever do this? This is dumb. Just, you know, don't do that. And writing for your future self is easier than writing for other people. Because if you're in an organization where you're programming, there's lots of other programmers. At the very least, when you're writing for yourself, you can, you, you can retrace your steps and you will arrive at the same conclusion again. But other people won't do that because they react differently to the same stimulus, basically. Uh, so for other people, what you're trying to do is, yeah, here's the one where you put the whys, but also like, what is the broader context of this whole thing? What is even going on here? Are there any assumptions that are unstated because you assume they're, they're obvious to everybody, but won't be obvious uh, to someone a year from now? And 
yeah, there's like writing comments is basically it's just basically writing. Like it's the same. You have to communicate to people in plain language with reduce ambiguity. Like it's a different it's a different goal, a different purpose, a different audience. But it is writing, and that's why programmers are so bad at it because those skill sets tend to not cluster frequently. Where people who are happy and comfortable programming are not happy and comfortable writing prose. Yeah, I, I guess it's true that a lot of times they're not. But every, there seems to be I know. I know it because we hang out with Mac yeah. nerds. We're the we're the intersection of liberal right. arts. We know all the <laughs> right? we know yeah. all the programmers who who are good writers. Like Brent, yeah. well, I mean, Brent's a great example. Rich, yeah, no, I know. I mean, we all know, we know people right. because we read their blogs. Right. That's how we know. Rich them. Siegel right. is another great example. Man, when he he doesn't write much, but when he does, it is so succinct and to the point, and it's it's exquisite. Like I I often refer back. I have a copy of the the BB Edit two point two manual, like the first public version of bb edit um and it's it's just like a model of clarity it is such a good piece of technical writing did he write that one I'm pretty well i know he wrote parts and there was a, whole, a couple of other credits up front but there's a, and there's like a little uh what would you would call a blog post now i sort of like why does bb edit exist why 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 on the mac would you you know want a programmer's text editor uh who would ever want to edit more than 32k of text <laughs> Uh, it's more, it's a more of like a personal statement, like a mission statement for BB edit. And, uh, uh, it's just terrific. I should actually see if he'd let me, maybe I'd, uh, see if I can rerun it or something. I think it would be an interesting, especially now that BB at 11's out, maybe I should, uh, see about getting it on the internet somewhere. Cause I think it stands up low these, yeah, low all, these many all, all years and, uh, operating systems later. All the stuff he writes, if you've met him. You can't help but read in his oh, voice because very <laughs> like true. The, He's such a person. The, the mannerisms and the pacing of the way he would say those things it comes through in the writing. Yeah. I just saw somebody tweeted 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 that the other day. I, I don't know if it was to both me and you, but to a couple of us, where they were like, "Now that we all have podcasts, they can't help but read everything we write in our own voices." Yeah. And I always hear that, and, and I, I, it's kind of nice because it means they're like listening to a lot of our podcasts. But I also kind of cringe because it's like, God, writing is where I get to be better <laughs> than how I speak. I want to sound way smarter when I write because I got all this runway and I could, you know, speaking, who knows what the hell comes out. But writing, like, that's my chance, right? And so it's almost a shame that they know, you know, the the stumbling idiots that are behind the words. Like, writing is a secret weapon. I got all the time in the world to figure out what the sentence is going to be. Yeah, and there's no wasted words and no stupid... Uh, yeah, well, ideally, I mean, obviously, like, right. again, that's the thing with long reviews. At a certain point, I just got to be like... That, that's that's the thing about these long reviews and all this stuff. Like, early on and still to this day in my OS 10 reviews, I'm a slave to getting out whatever idea it is in my head. If I have a point to make uh, or something to say about something... And I have like 17 points to make and 17 things to say about it. And I want to get them all out. And I sacrifice the quality of the writing many times because I'm like, this this could be said more elegantly in a different way, but it wouldn't have this one extra little bit of nuance. And I, I talk to myself, I'm like, why, what do you care that that one, like, this point is sufficient. You don't need to go into this other detail. And it's like, no, I want it. And so I make some awkward sentence and I put that other point in there. And it's, I, I, I hate myself for doing it, but a lot of times it's like, the overriding thing is say what I wanted to say and then secondarily try to say it in a reasonable way. Uh, and that's not, that's not the way to make good writing, but uh, that's a lot of times what I do in my OS 10 reviews. <laughs> Let's take a break. I am going to thank our first sponsor um, back for a second time. It's our good friends at uh, Casper. Now you guys might remember from uh, 
a few episodes ago. I think it was the one with uh, Chalk and Berry. Um, but Casper was a sponsor and had a great response. Craziest idea. I, I When I first heard this, craziest idea in the world. It's You go online. It's high-quality mattresses, like the ones you put on your bed at really, really good prices. Seems like a crazy thing to buy on the Internet. Like, But in terms – eventually, we're going to buy everything on the Internet. We're going to buy cars on the Internet. Um, you go there. They have – it's it's – Two technologies. They call it just the right sink, just the right bounce. It's two different technologies, latex foam and memory foam that they put together. It's like a special combination uh, that they've done just right. You don't have to sit there. There's not a whole bunch of different things you have to choose from. They 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 did it for us. They're the mattress experts. They've designed a really good mattress. Uh, I've had regular, I've tried not, I don't, I don't own one, but I've tried a regular memory phone mattress before. And I, I found them way too like weird the way that they, they make an indentation perfect for your body. It feels like I'm, I'm making a crime scene or something. Their mattress isn't like that at all. It's just enough of that memory stuff that it's comfortable, but it doesn't, you don't feel like you're sinking into it. Um, it's, it's crazy. Uh, did you get one of these, John? Or did, uh, was it Casey who got it for ATP? Casey got one. We were thinking of getting one just because we need right. a mattress, period. Uh, so they send me one. This is what they do when they sponsor a show. They send one to you, and it's like, well, how does a mattress show up? Uh, well, it shows up in like a little dorm room fridge-style box. Very small. You can't believe it, but it's because it's like two kinds of foam. They like vacuum seal the mattress, and it ships in what is still decidedly a very large package. It is way smaller than a uh, a mattress. So put it in a room where you're going to sleep in it, then open the box. They've got instructions that tell you exactly how to do it and let let it let it expand. But it works. It is absolutely amazing. It works. It uh, feels like a great mattress. I really like it. Um, and the prices are so much less than the prices you pay for mattresses out in the real world. It's ridiculous because the whole mattress industry is it's just the it's just like the Warby Parker story all over again, where it's like. It's like a cartel that com- you know controls the whole industry. They deliberately make it very, very difficult to comparison shop across stores because each store, even if it's from the same brand like Sealy, they have like six different Sealy's. The next store you go to has six different Sealy's and they all have different names, even though they're technically the same mattress because they do this to make it really hard for you to comparison shop and know whether you're paying a good price or not. Casper cuts out all that crap, and they just sell you great mattresses at a good price. Um, the typical price for a new mattress is well over fifteen hundred bucks. Casper mattresses cost between five hundred—that's the twin size—and nine hundred fifty for a king size mattress. Nine hundred fifty bucks, under a thousand dollars for a, a top tier mattress. You save hundreds and hundreds of dollars, um, and it's completely risk free. They have free delivery. And returns within a hundred day period. So three months to sleep on the thing. And if you don't like it, they'll pay to send it back. Um, no idea how that works. I kept mine. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how, how sending the full size mattress works, but they take care of it for you. And I believe it. Um, uh, Risk free. Oh, and the last point I want to make, I think this is great. Made in America, made in America mattresses. So, where do you go to find out more? Apparently, a whole bunch of you guys bought mattresses the last time their sponsorship ran. Totally encourage you. If you need a new mattress, check them out. Go to www.casper.sleep.com. Caspersleep.com slash talk show. Um, 
Now, you use that code, that talk show code, and you will save 50 bucks off their already low prices on any mattress that you buy. So you'll save an extra 50 bucks, and they're going to donate 50 bucks to a charity of my choice. And that's, uh, I'll do the same charity I did the last time, the Food and Allergy uh, Anaphylactic Network um, that my son and wife uh, raise a lot of money for. Food allergies for kids. Um, great charity. That's all on them. Great mattresses. Uh, go check them out at caspersleep.com slash talk show. Mattresses on the internet. What the hell is next? You know what else? People are already already buying cars on the internet. Yeah, I guess so. Not new. You can't buy new cars on the internet, though, can you? I think yeah. so. I don't know. Uh, speaking of big boxes showing up, my iMac showed up today. So I started, I, I ordered it uh, day one, so it must have been a week ago. Of course, I got a build to order, uh, and it said three to five days, and it had a target ship date of the October 24th to 28th, and I think it was a wide range because it was over a weekend. Um, I did pay, I think it was like 30 bucks for expedited shipping. So I checked last night before I went to bed, and it said, uh, you know, I got a notice that my iMac was ready, and it was in China. <laughs> And then at 10 o'clock in the morning today, my doorbell rang and it was here. So from when I went to bed last night, it was in China. And at 10 a.m., it was at my door, which is crazy. I, the magic of air travel. I can't help but think that when they told me it was in China, it was already really over the Pacific. But still, it's kind of uh, kind of astounding. Yeah, a lot of people have been getting there. I've seen everyone tweeting pictures of their boxes arriving. So the first batch came quickly. Uh. Everybody wants to know. I guess I could talk about it here. It's the sort of thing. I, I guess I'll write a review eventually, but um, I don't buy Macs very often. And then you even mentioned this on ATP. Like I just just now replaced a 2008 MacBook Pro that I had upgraded to an SSD at some point, which which gave it a couple more years of life. But it was really really aging. Um, and my desktop display, as you know, it's 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 like a 2004 20 inch cinema display. Yeah. So this is a serious, you know, for as reckless as I am buying a new iPhone every single year, I'm the opposite with Macs. I, I like to get one, max it out, and then use it until it's uh, until it's ridiculously old. Now you're going to find out if you have any glare in that room, because I'm looking at the 23-inch version of that, and it's matte. And, you know, like you don't know if you have any serious glare issues if you've been using a matte screen for the past however many years. You'll find out now if you see your, your face when you sit down in front of your Retina iMac. Yeah, that was that's one of those things where I, I think they've gotten better at it, and I know that the it's and it's the sort of thing you you can write about and they can advertise, but you really have to see it. The anti glare thing that they've done with the new iPad Air is pretty interesting. But I want to know why didn't they do it to the new iMac too? Yeah, it's not it's not laminated. Well, I think I think the reason they didn't laminate it is you know well, I assume is maybe it's just too hard to laminate something that big. But you know you, you know how it is. You take the glass off and then the screen is behind it. If they laminated them together, I guess you would like take the screen off when you opened it up and then you'd have to like disconnect the ribbon cables or whatever. It just, maybe it would make it weirder to disassemble. I don't know. But, but anyway, yeah, and it's definitely not laminated together. And so you've got that air gap, which in increases the glare. And also that's where the dust gets caught. If you ever have to bring in a thing to get serviced. Yeah, yeah. Those are two, two, two pet peeves that you and I share together. I do not like glare on my displays and I do not like uh, machine noise. Um, so I'm pretty, pretty, Pretty satisfied. I'm pretty sure that it's going to be. I didn't take it out of the box yet. I had too much to do today, so I, I wasn't even ready for it. Uh, 
but I'm pretty pretty excited that it's not going to be noisy. I'm a little worried about the glare. I've kind of made my peace with the glare because I have the Apple 24-inch uh, display uh, at work. You know, the first one that was the, kind of like the iMac type screen where it's uh, that, that it looks like the Thunderbolt display, but 24 inches and it was it predates it. Uh, but it's got the same thing, air gap uh, and the screen. And I'm in an office with, uh, you know, fluorescent lights and all sorts of other things. And there are reflection things, but the compared to all of my coworkers' displays, which are like these Dell or ViewSonic uh, things, or even like their, their uh, laptop displays and stuff, just the, the brightness and viewing angle, like the, the ridiculous brightness that these things have, the LED backlit screens, you never crank them up to the brightness in a regular house, but in an office setting where just, you know, the fluorescent lights are everywhere and it's all super bright, the ability to crank your screen up can really power through any other sort of glare. And it's just, it's so much easier to see things on my screen than anybody who is around me. I look at their screens and you can't see a thing because, I mean, because the viewing angles are bad because everything is so dim and muddy. So, uh, there are advantages to this this type of design where it's just crystal clear piece of glass and a super bright screen behind it. Uh, worst case, you can just crank it up again. Of course, my wife has a Thunderbolt display right behind me, and I look at that all the time. That, that looks really nice, too. Yeah. So I'm, I think I'm going to be okay with a screen like the one you've got on your iMac if I ever get yeah, one. Yeah, and the other thing that makes me feel pretty good about it is I, I'm okay with the glare on the current MacBooks. Like the, at least the Retina one that I have now. Those those are laminated too, though, aren't oh, they? I the most recent so. Retina. I don't know. Maybe they are. Oh, hmm. I think they are. I think because I think that my first impression when they first had the Retina 15 inch, like back at WWC when we were looking at Jason Snell's or whatever, it was like the colors were like up on the surface of the yeah. screen. The same type of thing you got with the, the iPhone 4, right. right? Yeah. So that's my guess. Maybe maybe that's how they keep the 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 whole lid so thin. Because yeah. it's you know seriously seriously thin. Well, I still feel like that, though. I, I remember when it was sort of a, I don't know how many years it was. I would say maybe in my mind it was around a three or four year period where um, there was like this great divide between, for laptops at least, gl uh, glossy and matte displays. And Apple stuck with matte and the whole PC industry went glossy. And every time I go like in a Starbucks or something and I'd see people using, you know, Windows PCs, I would I'd just be flabbergasted at the how like reflective their displays are. And then Apple started offering it was like a choice. I know what do you think? It was about a maybe the two or three years where we, you'd when you'd buy a new you know, it's probably the PowerBook era, I guess. There wasn't even MacBooks yet, but you'd get a choice between matte and glossy. And that's one of those things where I, I never hesitated for a second. It was, of course, I want Matt. Yeah, I think I, I wish I could remember this. I know what the PC people did for their glossy ones is they didn't do what Apple has come to do now, which is have a clear piece of glass on top of an LCD screen. I think maybe Apple's first glossy screens, but certainly also the, the, the PC glossy screens that sort of kicked off the thing were plasticky, but it was like super shiny plastic. I don't know if it was polycarbonate or something like that, but it had kind of like a sticky, wavy kind of look instead of what you get from a piece of glass, which is, you know, dead flat and like stiff, you know what I mean? And that made the screens look not only shiny, but also cheap. And I seem to recall Apple's first glossy displays being like that too. And that's why it was like, who in the world would ever want that? It just looks awful. Yeah. When they switched to the big piece of glass, a big heavy piece of glass, and it made the lids heavier and it wasn't great and there was a huge air gap, at least that looked a little bit classier to me, like more, 
Johnny Ive would say, more honest materials, you know, like they, when they finally sort of homed in, oh yeah, aluminum and glass, we're going to do that for a few years. Uh, that that settled things down a little bit. But but even then, and a lot of people who got the matte display just, just for reflection reasons. Yeah, I totally did. Uh, it's just funny though, That's just, that that used to be a thing. And I'm still, you know, because my display, my desktop display is so ancient. Uh, I think it's literally 10 years old. Um, if I didn't buy it in 2004, it was soon after. Um, it's, you know, it's like a relic. I have to say it was money well spent. I don't know how you stayed with 20-inch resolution for oh, so long. Because I, I feel myself just, I wish I could get out of this 23-inch. Like 1920 by 1200, I that's just like barely big enough to contain me but i feel boxed in the whole time i always i've thought it was too small the whole time <laughs> but eventually I don't know but why. eventually i got used to it and it you know it it, it uh i don't know did you pare down like your work environment where you like you don't have as many windows open as you would normally have and just kind of try to go into like oh, i'm just gonna have one central window with a text editor and then off to the side will be a web browser with a bunch of tabs and that's now it. i you know effectively i it's with a 20 inch display it's a lot like using just a supersized like the lunch tray uh macbook you know the seven so do you like it, do full screen no stuff? not full screen but for the most part everything i'm working on is just in a stack of windows and i have to command tab between them there's not, you know, it's not big enough to do a lot of side by side. So I'm really looking forward yeah. to that with the 27 inch. Yeah, now I have over the many years honed my sort of like layering and positioning system for my windows, which other people look at and can't make heads or tails of. But when I'm constrained and I start to have a lot of windows, I start running out of places places for the corners to poke out. Like that's, you know, the system is like I've got I've got things in corners and, and windows sized and shaped so that I can find a clickable region that's just the way i work with max you know starting from the 80s uh but when i just have too many damn windows i run out of places to have clickable stuff and if i ever find myself i can do command tilde not command tab but command tilde within right. an app to cycle through the windows i feel like i've been defeated by the lack of space so i really i really can't wait to get a 27 inch equivalent re point resolution screen right. So I can't review it yet. I literally didn't even take it out of the box. But having seen it at firsthand last week, and I know a lot, they're in the stores now too, and I've seen a lot of people who are at least going in to look at them. It's uh, it's gorgeous. It really is. It's it's it. I, I don't rush into it. Like I said, I, I'm replacing at my desk at least a six-year-old computer and a 10-year-old display. But it's it, it, I didn't hesitate to buy it, buy it on day one. And I know you guys talked on ATP that it's risky because, you know, there's a lot of times first generation stuff from Apple has kinks to be worked out. Image retention, of course, is is a huge question mark at this point. Um, I think Jason said, uh, Jason Snell did Marco's little image retention test and said uh, that his iMac, which he got already as well, passed with flying yeah. colors. So seems seems clear on that front unless they're using two manufacturers and he got the right. Movie. And it's in theory that's possible because Snell's is a review unit and they you know, I'm almost, I, I don't know for a fact, but I'm 99.99% sure <laughs> that they sanity check the review units, you know, that they, they're, they're not like factory sealed, you know, that there's a white glove guy who makes sure that every, that this is a good, you know, there's no. Yours aren't factory sealed. Cause I just got, uh, for the first time, I got a bunch of loaner Apple hardware for the Yosemite review and it looked pretty darn factory well, no, sealed they, they, right down to the I, little static clink I, stuff. I think they, I think they rewrap them back up. How, can you do yeah. that? Like that was. That was a game, you know, 
again, it's a novelty for me to be getting review hardware. Uh, and part of the game I played was I'm going to rewrap these things so they look like I didn't take them out. So I saved all the static mm. cling stuff and then I put it back on. And putting it back on is super yeah. hard. Like you can't get it lined up right. Oh, so. and I, can you wrap a gift? Uh, not great. Uh, it doesn't uh, look. Know. It looks when I wrap a gift, it looks like Dad wrote, wrapped it. <laughs> it does not look like nice. And even no matter how much I try, I can't. I know how to do it now. Now I've reached the age where I know what I need to do to make it look good. But at a certain point, I just don't care anymore. And like, it, it all comes down to having the right length overhangs. Yeah. And if you don't have the right length overhangs, no amount of skill and folding is going to save you. And then you realize you don't have the right overhangs, and you try to like trim it while it's wrapped around <laughs> the thing to make the. And then that just gets a ragged edge, and you're just like, you know what? Screw it. Fold, fold, fold. Right. There comes a point where you're you set out to make it like I want to wrap one as good as my wife can wrap a present. But eventually, <laughs> I run into that situation, and I think, wait, this is just going to be garbage 10 seconds after i give it to <laughs> yeah you don't try to think don't try to think about it while you're doing it it's like what, what am i doing here especially when you're wrapping something and it's like a gift for your wife and she already knows what it is <laughs> it's like what, what are we even doing here but like you just gotta just gotta plow ahead bravely right i should just wrap it in the receipt <laughs> remember remember wrapping things in uh the, the funny pages that comics yeah that was from newspapers that was a huge thing when we were kids Nobody does that no. anymore, probably because no one gets no, newspapers. Ex- it would like leave, it would leave newsprint all over everything, and it was like, who does that? I guess it was just like our parents saving money on wrapping paper. Yeah, I guess, or maybe you know, maybe a little bit of column A saving money and a little bit column B, where all of a sudden it's Saturday. They forgot they forgot it was the birthday. Yeah, party, it's yeah. well, it's <laughs> Saturday morning, and the party is at noon, and you rem- you have the gift, you bought the gift at you know, target the other day, but you didn't buy wrapping paper because you thought you still had a closet full of it and you don't. And well, we'll just use the Sunday paper. Yeah. But that was definitely a thing. I would, I would say when I was a kid, like lower grade school, I would say probably about a third of all the gifts that I got were wrapped in the the Sunday paper, Sunday. Well, I, I wonder how long we have to go with the school books being wrapped in, uh, grocery bags. Oh, I remember that for the covers. Right. So I think they still do that, but now the big thing in, in all of the, you know, the, the fancy stores like Whole Foods and everything is to have uh, cloth, reusable cloth bags so you don't make all that paper waste. Right. So I wonder how long those things will be around. Yeah, how long can you get a paper bag? Whole Foods gives out paper bags. Because whole, uh, yeah, if you don't if you don't have the little cloth bag because right. you forgot to put them in the trunk of your car, they give you a dirty look and then they put your stuff in a paper bag. <laughs> they always, yeah, there's like a passive aggressive, oh, you didn't bring a bag. Oh, yeah. I guess you don't care about the penguins who are going to choke to death on the bag. I'm going to put your stuff in. Well, enjoy your $5 avocados. <laughs> organic. I've heard that if I've heard that if you eat organic produce, you cannot get Ebola. <laughs> yeah. So there yeah. finally is an advantage. There's a reason to buy the 89 cents a pound organic bananas instead of the 69 cents a pound regular bananas because it'll all- it'll immunize you against Ebola. And they all—they come with organic fruit flies that will invade your house if you leave them on your counter too long. But they're adorable. They're absolutely adorable fruit flies. <laughs> um, I might as well let's take a break, and I'll do a second sponsor because it seems like a good a good time to break. Um, but then we'll go back. I want to let's talk about next last week's event a little bit too before we get into Yosemite. Um, but I want to take a break and thank. Uh, one well, I love all sponsors, but I love I love this one a little more than most. Our good friends at Backblaze, unlimited, unthrottled backup for your Mac. Um, 
they've been here for so long. They've sponsored this show so many times. And I always think, well, everybody's got to be signed up for them, but people keep signing up. So there must be a bunch of you out here who are listening to me right now. And you've heard me talk about Backblaze before. And you've thought, that sounds good. I should get that. Uh, but you haven't done it yet. Well, do it. I, honestly, I, I don't even mean to run them out as a sponsor, but I, I, I love this product and I love this company so much. And it's it makes your data safer. You install their software on your Mac. You sign up for an account. Uh, you can try it risk-free, no credit card to get your trial period going. Uh, and then everything on your Mac, everything, even if you have external drives and you have, you know, I don't know, three terabyte external drive and it's all filled up. It might take a while for that first backup to get everything up there, uh, depending on your internet connection at home. But just wait, it will. Uh, and once it is, then from that point forward, everything on that Mac stays in sync, backed up to their servers. They have over 100 petabytes of total data backed up. Uh, and the users have just crossed the 6 billion files restored mark. Uh, so when you restore, let's say a catastrophe hits, and uh, you lose your whole startup drive, and you don't have a backup near local. You don't have a, a local backup. Uh, well, how are you going to get your whole, you know, uh, one terabyte drive back? What you can just tell them, they'll, they'll put it on a USB drive for you, and then FedEx the drive to you, and then ding dong, the UPS guy is there, and you've got a hard drive from them with all of your stuff on it. Uh, let's say you just need one file. Well, you can log in on the web, go to your backup, Go you know, through the hierarchy, find that file, and restore it right there. Put it in a zip file, and you can download it right there. So good, so easy, uh, super reliable. Cannot recommend them strongly enough. Uh, so here's what you do. Go to backblaze.com slash daringfireball. Backblaze.com slash daringfireball. They'll know you came from the show. And uh, like I said, it's free to get started. Free. No risk, no credit card. Just do it. So my thanks to them. Works great with Yosemite, too. So last week's event. Uh, I thought it was it was a little weird. And I, I you guys touched on this on ATP with uh, Phil Schiller. And was he flat or not? And I got a bunch of emails and tweets from people who were like, hey, what's up with Phil? Was he like, you know, so, something seemed wrong with Phil. He, se- he seemed distracted is the word I used. Yeah, that's, that's- I... I didn't notice this during the event. I thought Phil was just Phil. It's sort of downbeat Phil. Not, not you know, just like, this is not a big deal, Phil. And I think it was very deliberate. I, I think it was sort of low-key, maybe, I would say. I wouldn't say distracted. Well, but he he's always like that to some degree, right? He's he's he, The pace of his speaking and his presenting style is always a little bit weird like that. Maybe he was up uh, next to people who are doing more fake enthusiasm about things or being, but it just, he occasionally does seem distracted about stuff. Sometimes I feel like he's distracted because he's thinking about the next thing he's going to present, even though he's been doing this for, this for so long, like that he's thinking about the next thing he's going to present, trying to remember the things he's going to do in the demo or whatever. And he'll get, he'll get inside his own head about that and like forget to fake enthusiasm about something that he's seen a million times before. Uh, but it, did not stick out to me much. Like, I mostly just thought it was, that's just, you know, Phil's a Loki kind of guy, and this is the way he presents, and if you've seen it so much, that kind of fades into the wallpaper. But I, I always occasionally see him kind of be distracted. I mean, for all we maybe he was, I forget if the, in the timing of the thing, was this before or after uh, 
the road trip typo Federighi. thing. Uh, no, the, the the demo of the guys who like did a typo during the thing and they fixed it in post. Remember that? Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Um, who made the the video video editing thing? I forget if the time if it was after that. It's like he could have been thinking about that because he's like, "God, oh, we rehearsed this so many times. How did we screw up this demo?" You know. But if it was before that, I don't have an explanation. Yeah, what was the deal with that? I didn't know that they fixed it in post. I remember I didn't notice it during the event, and a lot of people pointed it out. Was it was it a Federighi demo where he'd mistyped Road Trip? No, it was it was like people who third party software developers. I don't forget who they are, and they were showing oh, off replay, their video writing re- software, and they, and they were yeah yeah, and they were not native English speakers. Right, and France. the guy who was who's sort of running the demo machine, he fell victim to autocorrect. That I think it autocorrected Utah to its mm-hmm. so instead of Utah road trip, it was its road trip. Yeah. And the guy shook his head and was pissed at himself for like falling victim to autocorrect and then just plowed forward with the demo. But then in post, they, they have a somewhat good YouTube clip of an al- analyzing this. In post, they re screen captured the screen image and froze his image of himself before he does the head shake <laughs> and then transitioned him at post head shake. It was a pretty good edit. Like, because it's side by side. You see the person, you see the screen and they more or less seamlessly made it seem like that did not happen, which is fine. Like, who cares? That's pretty cool. It is shows you that Apple sweats the details. Oh yeah. No, like they rehearse it so many times. And like, you could see the autocorrect bubble. And, like we all know autocorrect. Oh, don't hit space bar. It's going to complete the it's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite little detail, I, I'm actually, it's like, to, to get the iPad review out, I had to shelve it. But I still want to write my th- write a Daring Fireball piece on my thoughts on last week's event. Um, and my favorite little thing, and I'm not surprised, and you won't be surprised, but I had to double check, is that image that they used a couple of times showing, a you know, a watch, a phone, an iPad, a MacBook, and now the iMac, like, that's, you know... I thought clearly like an homage to like that that evolution image, uh, even though it sort of goes the other way where the Mac was first and these other products you know came later. It's sort of left to right, newest to oldest. But um, I thought that was a really telling image. I thought it was especially telling that they used it multiple times early on with Tim Cook and then like in the wrap up. Um, but I checked, and of course they made two versions of it. <laughs> the first one was with an iPad Air original iPad Air and the one they used at the end when Tim Cook closed the iPad is thinner and it's no yeah if you look at them side by side it's very noticeable that they made a second version with a thinner iPad even though they're only showing them from the side and it at any given moment it was it was impossible to tell which generation iPad it was because it was from the side did they did the iPad the iMac external case proportions change at all with the retina yeah I can't tell it's because that's the one I would look for replacement, but if they're exactly the same, you won't be able to tell, like, from the side. You yeah. Know what I mean? Like, if, if they had slimmed it down, or maybe you can't tell from that angle, but yeah. And they were obviously very proud of that thing, although when it first came up, I read it as, like, I knew they weren't trying to make it text, but but it kind of looked like, I guess, Elo had been on my mind, that weird social network thing or whatever. Yeah. It's like, this kind of looks like it could be letters. They could spell things out with that if they wanted, but that's not what it was. The evolution thing is, is a much uh, closer analogy, because it's from... You know, the hunched thing to the standing up thing. So you got to put the tallest one on the right, even if it's, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at them now side by side. It, they changed the lighting on the iMac in the, between the two slides and it makes the, the app, the, the after one, it looks a little thinner, but I, it looks to me though, that it's just that they, that they changed the lighting and there's less of it and sh- more of it's in shadow. 
Uh, it's just a different product. Like it's a different product shot. Right. Like you know when they when they brought up the new iMac to take a shot of it, the lighting wasn't the same as when they had that older iMac to take a shot of it. So it shows up differently. Like I I think you linked to a few people talking about this, and I mostly agree with whatever person you linked to that was ta- saying like this is cute and all, but it doesn't communicate to people who aren't already on board much of anything because regular people might not even understand what they're looking at let alone which device is which. Uh, like Apple was clearly uh, excited and proud of it. And, and we Apple followers and nerds thought it was clever and interesting and, and novel because you have to find some interesting way to show these things instead of just like, here's all the screens with black borders that Apple makes. Right. They come in different sizes, right? And, you know, one of them has a little stand at the end. So coming up with new and interesting ways to photograph Apple's product line is a challenge that is mostly relevant to people who either work at apple or have been following apple for a long time whereas if you throw that image up in front of regular people i'm not sure how well it will communicate anything or read to them at all but i you know the audience for this apple event anyone this is not the iphone event this is the the lesser event in what was it, in the town hall yeah, or whatever call it town hall. S- small room uh mostly of interest to apple followers so it was the appropriate venue for that image but i'm not sure how well it reads to everybody yeah else. i don't think it, it- it, that's why I found it interesting because there's two parts to the, the to the Apple presentations, not necessarily two halves, but there's two types of messages they seek to convey. Some are for the mass market, and they sometimes even show the actual commercials that they're going to put on real TV. They'll just show the commercial right there. So it's exactly what they're going to be pushing in their marketing to hundreds of millions of real people through advertising. But then other parts are the as close as Apple will get to inside baseball. And that's meant for like us in the media who are then going to, you know, it's, it's, it's like they're playing a bank shot. They're trying to get us to understand them so that when we write about them to the mass market, that we're going to have it right. That we, we see what Apple is seeing. Yeah. They're going to emphasize the the parts that they think will tickle our the, the fancy of, of the, the Apple fans, like they're going to show you the video about the manufacturing process and emphasize the beauty of one particular physical feature. So that in the hopes that when you write your review, that feature that you might have overlooked, you'll say, well, I just they showed this whole five minute video of a factory and, and Johnny Ive and his white world talking about it. And suddenly that's more prominent in your mind. It's just basically basic, you know, talking to the press type of things. But they will they're never going to show that video of the Mac Pro factory to regular people they don't care about the macro at all period and, and certainly not how or where it's built or all the things they did about the unibody or whatever like they can say it's unibody and they can give the thing out or whatever but they're going to show those you know computer controlled milling machines with the water going over them and, and just talk about it forever like when they came out with the MacBook Air and then so the subsequent unibodies they really hammered on that to try to get the message across to the press who would then get the message across that hey I know you understand what unibody is and I know know you're going to see it's one piece and blah 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 but it actually makes a difference and it's a big deal and that's that's the bank shot yeah. you know five minute video on cnc milling machines and that hopefully translates to a little bit extra emphasis when the first unibody products come out in the, the consumer facing product reviews um another i just i love this image and i think another aspect somebody compared it somebody on twitter compared it to one from one of the recent events that microsoft had um for like the surface, probably the surface pro three event. And they had a table lined up in their hands on area with, um, Nokia phones and surface pros and some of them on the table and some of them in a laptop stand and desktop computers and laptop computers, you know, up to the, you know, whatever the HP equivalent of an iMac is. 
all of them running exactly the same start screen. You know, this blue, you know, blue colored, whatever the, whatever they renamed Metro interface, you know, and that what a country, you know, it's, it's a philosophical contrast where, you know, Microsoft went in this direction where you get the exact same interface across phone from phone to, you know, 30 inch desktop display and Apple, you know, when it and is, you know, reiterated this year, you know, that each, each of these devices gets an interface that is just for that form factor and include, you know, making them very different. Um, and, you know, we can even talk about it when we, st- when we get into your Yosemite review, the way that Yosemite is clearly inspired by the direction that iOS 7 went. But it's it, it, even at a glance, just if you've been tuned out for six months and still haven't even seen Yosemite and you took a look at it right now, you wouldn't think, oh, they copied iOS 7, that it's, you know, the exact same thing. It's different. Yeah, it's a family resemblance, right. but it's like a brother or a cousin. It is not an identical twin. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, like a sibling not a twin. Um, and I think showing these devices in this promotional image for us, you know, this press image where you don't even see the display is in a, in a strange way emphasizes that the, that what you would see on the displays are very different across them. And also think, and I think this is always interesting to me and I try to think about it is what are the things that Apple is trying to convey to us that they can't bring themselves to say, for various reasons, because it's, you know, they just couldn't say that. And to me, this, one of the things with this image in the way that they spoke about it is uh, that they don't expect or even want everybody to buy everything. You're not supposed to have an iMac and a MacBook and an iPad and an iPad mini and, you know, a phone and a watch. If you do, great, (laughs) you know, you're a great customer. But if you just have two of them, that's great, you know. Maybe you have a, this, you know, like the i iPhone six plus, and because it's a huge phone, you feel like now I don't need an iPad, and your only other product is a MacBook, and you just use that MacBook everywhere. You use it at your desk, you use it when you travel, and that's it. You're a that's a perfect. You're a perfectly um, encouraged. That's 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 absolutely encouraged. But they can't say that. They can't say it's okay if you don't buy this. You know what I mean? It's you, you can't get on stage and say, you know, this cool new iMac that we just showed you. It, it's totally fine if you don't buy it and just use a MacBook. Yeah, we talked about this on an ATP a little while ago about how they even just within the iOS device range, but in, in all of them, if you see them head on or whatever, again, they all just look like a black border around a, a, a color LCD screen of various sizes. But now they really fleshed out the range, especially with the watch being the little tiny thing. And then you have all the different various sizes of iPhones and the big one. And then the, the, the biggest one gets close to the mini. And then you have that, you know, like it's a pretty smooth scale up of, of rectangular color screens that you can buy from Apple yeah. all the way up to the big giant retina one that you bought. Uh, but the, and as the physical form factors have started to, to form the smooth scale that they're kind of showing in this image here, there's still discontinuities because what is the difference between uh, an iPhone 6 Plus and an iPad? One runs iPad apps and one runs phone apps. And the, the line between them, you know, we we're saying an ATP is probably going to go away sometime in the near future because that distinction, like if you were to get an iPhone 6 Plus, go to the app store and be like, oh, I totally want this game or this app. And they're like, oh, sorry, you can't. It's iPad only. It's like, what do you mean iPad only? Like the iPad isn't that much bigger than the screen I'm holding in my hand. What is it about the thing I'm holding in my hand that means it can't run a quote unquote iPad app? 
uh, that distinction seems like it's going to go away. But this, the other gap of like you get the you know the iPad Air or if they ever come out with like an iPad Pro, and then to a MacBook Air, which presumably go Retina too. Why are these so different? It's like, well, it's easier to explain one has a keyboard, but they run totally different OSs. One is touch, one is not touch. Like, they Apple is expecting you to pick your spot in their product line where you feel comfortable because there are discontinuities still. And I, they're never going to paper over them to the degree that Microsoft does. Like, oh, one OS everywhere, because that's not what Apple believes in. But in any kind of tr- transition, like there's another discontinuity when you go from the phone to the watch, because it just has to be. It can't work the same way. It's just too small or whatever. So these little gaps, like if they were to space it out, it'd be like watch, big gap, phone, 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 tiny gap, iPad, bigger gap, laptop, even bigger gap, iMac, you know? And you're supposed to pick in that range of like, uh, you know, like Chinese food menu, one from column A, one from column B, like, and make up the suite of devices that, that fill out your life. And I, by having this range, I think obviously someone's not just going to buy the watch and not have a PC and not have a cell phone. Like they're, you're going to have something in this range. Just which ones do you think you need? No one needs to fill in all the gaps. Yeah, and that they, but they can't say it that in that way, right? And I, f- well, they say it in the way like we have something for everybody. Yeah. You know, like they just say, look, look at this range. Like, look at the richness of this range. There, surely there is something that fits your needs. Like, we, you know, we're fleshing it out, like diversifying the iPhone line for the longest time. Like, the iPhone was the iPhone, and everybody wanted, like, I- even now you can say there's room for diversification of, like, you know, make one thicker and have longer battery life or something. But, like, they, they've diversified their line to say something for everybody here. And the, the same way they don't expect you to buy two iPhones, like the big one and the small one, or your night phone or your day phone. Uh, it's the same thing that they, they don't say that because they think it's obvious, but. Just like they're not going to say if you if you buy uh, you know a MacBook Pro, we probably don't expect you to buy an iMac because the MacBook Pro is a completely fully capable, awesome machine that you can do everything on. But if you're the kind of person who wants a desktop, we will offer one of those too. Yeah. Um. Mac Pro. It, it, I, I some people wrote to me after the iMac announcement and they're sort of I have obviously they've bought a Mac Pro in the last 10 months um and they're angry that did Marco write no, to you? Marco you know did not get angry he just went out and bought an iMac uh <laughs> but to me that's so totally not surprising you know that that even though the Mac Pro is a very expensive machine and it in theory should always be at the leading edge of technology and it is in a lot of ways that it didn't go retina first um or at least simultaneously and probably not even close like i know i marco's logic of why he doesn't think a standalone 5k display is going to ship from apple until 2016 is pretty sound because it it there's a lot of i think he's i think it probably does need display port slash thunderbolt you know 1.3 slash thunderbolt 3 um because they're not going to do the they're not going to have you run two cables to drive it just, yeah, I mean, that, that, that was always obvious that there's an advantage of an all-in-one. The advantage the all-in-one has is they can use whatever the hell interconnect they want inside that box. Right. It doesn't need to conform to any specification. It doesn't need to, they can just do what do what you got to do to make it work. It all happens inside the box. And so you're always going to have an advantage with that thing. If it happened that a, a standardized external interconnect existed for Retina displays in the same time frame as the Mac Pro, the Mac Pro would have had it first. Yeah. But it just so happened that it didn't. What and and then you're like, okay, well, we need to get Retina out there somehow. And because the Mac Pro uses the, the you know the Xeon parts, and because they're a generation behind, and because we don't have the external interconnects, Apple just did whatever the hell it took to get it done inside this iMac box. And don't worry about what goes on behind the curtain. Right. 
Um, but it does create this weird and in, in historical time, you know, five, six, seven years from now, we're going to look back on it and it'll just be compressed. And we'll just remember that the iMac was first and everything, you know, the standalone displays were second in the interim though. It is weird that the iMac is going to have these super amazing retina displays and the Mac pro, no matter how much money you spend on it, won't unless, you know, well, I mean, you can get a 4k display, not from Apple right. for your Mac, And then, and then you'd buy one of those like special, you know, ones for photography that has a bigger color gamut and has better accuracy and, you know, buy it from NEC. It's like the people who are buying Mac pros might already have these super high res monitors for 4k video editing that conform to different standards than this consumer iMac screen right. does. So it's not, I, the people who might be complaining are people who had bought a Mac pro, but didn't really need one and just wanted to have a King of the Hill machine. Now they right. don't. Right. That's because I, th- I do think that's re- what irks them is that now, until there's a 5k standalone display and when that comes out it won't run on the exit you're gonna have to get a new yeah, mac I pro mean, anyway I mean, they they should have known that going in i mean it's one of, one of the many reasons that i didn't buy one is like well if i was waiting for retina this mac pro is not the machine because we know what it's capable right. of we know apple didn't even offer any monitors i didn't want a third party monitor and if i did have a third party monitor i didn't want it to be 4k i wanted what apple made here i want a 27 inch the resolution of my wife's 27 inch thunderbolt display it just double the uh, the number of pixels vertically and horizontally. Yeah, there's that's the thing that really blew me away at first. I was like uh, uh, waiting for the well. There's got to be a catch, and then I thought about like like with the iPhone six plus, where it's not really three X Retina, it's two two point eight Retina or two point six, and they just use scaling to make it work, and it looks pretty good, but it's still not the same. T- I thought oh, maybe it's like a scaling thing, and then you know they gave the pixel dimensions, and I'm like dividing in my head and i'm like ooh, that sounds like actual 2x retina you know and it is yeah now dell, dell had announced a monitor with similar specs so you as soon as dell announced you're like okay well this this must be technically possible now if dell is going to offer one so once it's technically possible then it's just like when when does apple have a product that this could be i mean if the imac didn't exist and dell comes out with this monitor that the, the current mac pros can't drive with a single cable and might not be able to drive with two depending on how they did it then we just would all been waiting and we'd be like, well, Dell's got these monitors, but we can't have them. But, you know, the iMac does exist and it gave Apple an opportunity to, you know, we can get as soon as those displays are available, we got to get one into one of our machines. And the iMac is the way to make that happen. Yeah. So famous, you know, knock on wood, uh, let's wait until I actually take it out and set it up and use it. But on paper, at least, and from what I've seen in person, this is the Mac I've been waiting for close to 10 years, you know. Yeah. It's going to be a big upgrade. For oh, you. huge upgrade. Ever since I, I remember when they were first started talking about it at WWDC in maybe 2006, 2007, but what they called it, uh, what did they call it before they had the word retina? High DPI, uh, uh, resolution, resolution independence. independence, scalable UI, yeah, resolution independence was, was the thing. And I remember cause, and I mentioned this too, like my, my fellow obsessive on resolution independence is cable sasser at panic. And I remember going to the session at WWDC with him and we came out so excited and he was like, uh, we're going to do, we're going to redo all the graphics and all of our apps as PDFs. And they did. In fact, they like panic started shipping apps with, with scalable PDF, uh, icons and stuff like that inside for toolbars and stuff like that years ago, <laughs> because 
Cable and I both convinced ourselves. I don't even know what we were thinking. I mean, it, well, it's not. It's not just you. Like, at, like if you go back through my old OS ten reviews, Apple made promises. Yeah. They're like, by two thousand eight, our whole product line will be resolution independent. So get ready. Yeah. That was like two thousand six when they said yeah. that, right? They they gave it. They gave a year and a date, and like every year, like there used to be a section in, in my OS ten reviews is like. Uh, you know, resolution independence, how's that going along? And I would take a little screenshot of text edit in like 2x mode or 1.5x mode, and you see what a train wreck it is. And you're like, and that's why this is still not a user facing f- picture. Right. See you next year. Uh, we just convinced ourselves that the that like Retina iMacs were going to be coming out in like 2008. And <laughs> we were so excited. We wanted to get in line to buy one then. Uh, and it took until now. Uh, just, I mean, it was so much easier to make the iPhone 4 screen. It's way smaller. Right. It's way fewer pixels, and it's just so hard to make it that density, you know. So we had to wait a long time before it was economically feasible to make a screen this massive. I mean, it, that was the whole thing with the Retina. It's like, well, maybe they could have done this earlier. If Like, maybe they'll just do it for the 21-inch iMac, right? Because right? they could have gone that. They could have probably made that one Retina sooner. It would have been like 4K-ish or 3K-ish type right. resolution. But no, they went for the the whole enchilada. Yeah. And it's really, as far as I can tell, no compromise. It's, you know, in terms of the number of pixels, the way they're doing it, you know, that there's no no cheapening out on it. It's super bright. It's amazing to me. Because that was the other thing, too. During the, the event last week, after, you know, Phil gave the specs and the size and, uh, you know, I... I I thought, well, you know what? It's going to be power. It's going to this thing. It's because that's, you know, it's a huge problem. All these pixels lighting it up. Uh, is this thing going to get super hot? And instead, it takes less power, which is crazy. Yeah, that that's the thing that made me feel good about the machine that like that is not going to be just at, at the ragged edge of what's possible to wedge into this thing, right. you know, with the cooling and everything. So they, you know, the GPU is is hotter, but they made up for it by actually making the screen consume less power. Yeah. So. My hope is that it's what by by not compromising. And clearly, like you said, they could have shipped something sooner. Whether it was like the go twenty one inch first, or make it a twenty seven inch four K display and use scaling to make the on screen elements a reasonable size, as opposed to making everything cartoonishly large. Um, they could have done any number of those things within the last few years and didn't. And I think hopefully it's, it's almost like they're shipping like a 2.0 version of it that they waited until they could get everything just right. This is what people who have one sitting in their house, tell themselves to make themselves feel better about first generation Apple products. <laughs> <laughs> this is practically a 2.0. <laughs> I mean, so far, so so far, so good. The only there was a little bit of a scary moment this morning when uh, Marco and, and I had a few people uh, tweeting at us to like, look at this stuttery. Like someone was swiping through spaces on their new Retina 5K iMac, and it was like super slow and stuttery. And it was like, uh oh. Uh, but then a million other people tweeted and, and showed the exact same thing on their you know 13 inch MacBook Pros. Uh, it's just uh, some weird Yosemite bug, yeah. and that hopefully they'll work out in 10 10 one which will hopefully come out soon because I had, I had no reproductions at home. Like, I mean, even on my, you know, pre unibody MacBook pro smooth doing all that stuff. But then on my Mac at work that had been on for days, that's running Yosemite. I enabled uh, activated mission control, which I never do otherwise. And it was stuttery. So I'm like, Oh, this has got to be Yosemite bug because we get reports. Like it doesn't happen all the time. And, uh, the best I can tell is that it's some kind of issue that happens when your Mac is on for a really long time. But anyway, there are bugs. And that was the only scare so far uh, about the 5k IMAX uh, turns out to be a false alarm. Yeah. I never know how far I can push it in the hands-on areas after these events. Like, 
and there's others who who are bolder than I am who will do it. Download Geekbench and try. To yeah, run. see, I wouldn't do that. Um, yeah, because then they'd stop you. There's everyone. Is, I mean, what's, what's the point? Like, if people are going to get loaner hardware anyway, then you can test it for all you want. Like, it's not the thing to do with the hands-on right. area. Um, well, and I, I I can see how the people though who aren't getting review units would be t- more tempted to do something like that and see if they can get away with getting you know, yeah or, or like the iOS devices like you want to find out if it's three cores in that iPad right so right. you know quickly go to some you know, I don't know <laughs> exploit some crazy jailbreak thing to quickly get some little executable to run yeah they they they'll I think they'll generally cut you off before you get that far. <laughs> um, but it's funny talking to them because the, the the people who staff the hands-on areas, I think, are all. I know most of them are, but I think all of them work under Schiller in the product marketing um, division at Apple. And they're it's easy to to think of them. You know, they all wear T-shirts like like they're working in an Apple store or something like that. But they're all like, in my experience, super super informed about the stuff that you are. Uh, that you're talking about. Like if, if, if yeah, I'd asked yeah. them, Hey, is this three core? And is that how it went from two, two billion transistors to three, they would know the answer, but they'd also know that they're not allowed to tell me like they're super, super informed. Yeah, no, they're totally brief. They have, they have yeah. their talking points. They know what they will talk to you about. They know specific phrasing for, you know, if you ask them a question about something and they're going to tell you something about, it, they're going to, they're all going to use the same yeah. sentence in the same words. It's, it's talking. Well, yeah, like they, that, they are professionals. But yeah. And that's all, it's very evident. Like if, you know, anybody was there at their first, you know, the first time you get invited to an Apple event and you go to the hands-on area, it's very clear that they have a script and they have talking points. Um, but the other thing though, is that they, their full-time jobs 363 other days a year are working in Apple's product marketing, being hyper-informed about the, all of the technical details of all of Apple's products. Like the, these people know, they know their shit. They know the stuff that's not on the script. And it's, it, you know, and they're not going to be fooled by somebody trying to download Geekbench or something like that. Maybe I could see getting away with it in, in the early parts of the hands-on areas because it's so crazy and crowded and it's everybody wants to get their hands on them at once. And maybe you can get away with it, but not for long. My thing was I, I they were showing um, photos, of course, um, big images, um, because it you know it just shows off the the thing they commissioned a guy with like one of those i think they're called hasselbads hasselbads uh but you know like this camera that shoots like i don't know 50 50 megapixel digital images and like a cityscape and you can see these details and you can just zoom in and you, you read like the license plate number on the car and then zoom back out and it's you know you can actually see that it's still being rendered in individual pixels on screen um but I closed that and went to like the finder and opened up like a Safari window and then tried to drag it around the window as fast as I could. Like that, that was my benchmark in the hands-on area. Like if I drag a window around as fast as I can, does it, uh, does it shear? Yeah. Like I think, yeah, that was a good thing to test. And also, you know, if you think about the, the first 15 inch Retina MacBook pros, like scrolling at the maximum resolution at the one that was bigger than the native screen, you know, that that one had a little bit of uh, issues. Might not, you know, probably with the scaling and not with the compositing because compositing has always been fast compositing is pretty easy to do what you're looking for sharing is because you know they have to be driving it with like essentially two display port 1.2 connections or the equivalent behind the scenes and like you would look at like they're driving the left half of the screen right. Or the right half of the screen differently but like i mean that's the type of thing apple would not ship if you could if you could get tearing while dragging windows around 
I mean, Apple never shipped that. Even when it meant that dragging Windows around was slow as molasses, you still didn't get any tearing. That's like I would have been uh, I would have been shocked, but it was like something I had to see to believe. Right? Yeah, I, I yep. had, but that was the, the extent that I tested it in advance. Um, yeah, and scrolling, I put I positioned a window right in the middle, so if there was a you know, if it was some kind of two screens glued together trickery, that I I tried to figure that out, and of course it's not. Um, anything else from the event last week? I guess there's the iPad two, iPad Air two. Which is kind of interesting. I think the way that they've gone with the air with the iPads is, uh, I, I tried to write about it this week that it's there's no real annual pattern to it, and I don't think it means that it's directionless. I just feel like the the engineering wins that they can pull off each year while maintaining their profit margins are very very different as compared to the iPhone, which to me seems much more predictable. The, th the thing with the top-end iPad, and the reason I'm still totally in favor of an iPad Pro, is like, while no one is really paying much attention, they are pushing up the the, the highest-end iOS device, pu pushing up really close to PC class in terms of power. Yeah. Not in terms of interface. Like, it right. still doesn't have a keyboard. Still, It's still touch or whatever, but, you know, and it doesn't seem like a big deal. We're like, oh, so what? I run my iOS apps faster, and maybe, like, a game will look nicer or something like that, but... It's like it's one of those things where, when we have all the steps in between, it doesn't seem so impressive. Like it's not as impressive as you know uh, iPhone three GS, iPhone four, where they go right and you're like, wow, they just doubled everything. It's amazing, right? But through a series of small steps, there's going to come a point where new classes of applications are possible on an iPad merely because they've been pressing it forward and. There was a little stall there. I think a lot of it has to do with like just having one gigabyte of RAM for a yeah. long time, but now and and having two cores for how long have we had two cores? Like everyone else has gone quad core and like the Android space and everything like that. So now they're pressing again, two gigs of RAM, three cores. I don't think it makes new categories of stuff available to you, but maybe a generation or two from now, we're going to wake up and say there are things that the iPad can do that the iPhone can't quite dream of doing yet. I mean. Right now, it's like you just need this extra power to run this bigger screen, and and the iPhone, you know, is reasonable. But like, I I think you had just have so much more headroom in the bigger form factor. So far, they haven't really been willing to do it that much. This is the first year I feel like they're pulling away by giving it double the RAM and everything. Yeah. Uh, but you know, there is room. I think there is room for for more sophisticated applications uh, to be on a an even larger and even more powerful iPad. We're just like right now, it's kind of like. We're inching towards that. It just seems like meh, a faster, bigger iPad. Well, so like, I think the two demos they chose are were really good. I think they were such great demos. The Pixel, Pixel Mentor, and Replay. <laughs> well, did you see that Schiller right, mispronounced it? It's been listening to you too much. Yeah. So Schiller called it Pixel Mater. Uh, <laughs> uh, but those are good demos because, in theory, if they've already got the iOS app working for the iPad, they could come out with, maybe they will even, uh, you know, maybe when, when Pixelmator for iOS ships, it will be universal and it'll run on your iPhone too. But clearly editing photos is better. The bigger the screen, the better. And on a phone screen, you're seriously constrained, you know, and for like the exact thing that they did where they're making like an advertisement for, you know, this big image and they want to superimpose text and, um, you know, having a, a laptop size screen like the full size iPad, uh, 
even though that might be small for a laptop, it's still certainly, you know, nobody, you know, the, the, the small iPad, the mini is vaguely giant size phone size, right? It would be the biggest phone ever, but it's, you know, you could imagine somebody making an Android phone that's the size of an iPad mini, but not an iPad. And for photo editing, it's, you know, size matters. And then I think with those replay guys, I thought that was an interesting, boy, you could never do that on a PC, uh, uh, demo because to me the big part of that is that you've already got you it's the device you use to ship shoot the clips yeah. it's all one thing it's the camera it's the editing system it's the it's the playback system right and you don't have that with a laptop like where you might shoot a bunch of video on your phone and then you can connect your phone with a lightning adapter to your MacBook and suck all the video over and open it. And, and then you might airplay it onto your TV so people can see it or put it back on your phone right. because it, unless people gathered around your screen. Yeah, I but mean, it's certainly, the, yeah. A, that's beyond the technical acumen of a lot of typical people. And B, it's not something you want to do when you're on vacation. Like in the demo that they, yeah, because because you don't, yeah, it's like it's the type of thing where when you're on vacation, you tell yourself that when you get back home, boy, you're going to spend a day and take all of your stuff and put it onto your computer and make a nice video and send it out to people, but you won't because you get back from vacation and you're rushing around and you're back to your regular right, life. Right, and there's 50- whereas when you're on vacation, you got the iPad with you, you can do it when you you know go back to your hotel room or right. whatever, or while you're waiting for your table at dinner and just suck these clips in and push a button and have a finished video pop out that you could post. Share share right, right there and then say, hey, hey guys, this is what we're doing on our vacation. Right. And like the, the other thing that's lurking for the iPad, which we still haven't seen, but people have poked around, like the whole, you know, split screen multitasking, which we know is lurking the code for splitting right. multiple apps into thirds and quarters. It's there and obviously it's not baked yet and they're not ready for it. And maybe you need a bigger iPad or whatever. But that's what I'm talking about of like pressing the limits of what can be done on a touch device. I, I can't help but think that going to two gigs of RAM is a sign that if there's an iPad Pro in like five months from now, or you know, that because that's the root, the rumor is you know, make maybe like February or March, they're going to have an iPad Pro, uh, you know, 12 or 13 inches or something like that, and it'll have split screen. My guess is that this iPad, if that's true, this iPad Air 2 will get the split screen too, but no other iPad will because, yeah, because there's just not enough room on the smaller one. Yeah, I think it's not like they've promised it, but you know, and in fact, I guess they still sell the, the, I think the original mini, which they're selling for 249 is only 512 megs of RAM. And, you know, you guys talked about ATP, but it's it. The frustration with the growing range from bottom high end to low end is that developers don't have the ability to say this app only runs on the iPad Air 2 because it's so graphically intense. You can't do that. Your, your iPad, your, your iPad app has to run on at least launch on all iPads. Yeah, but that, that's something Apple has the flexibility to change at any right. time, though. It's an app, just an app store rule. They can change the rule at any time. They can give you a little API and a point update to definitively say, you know, because they keep bragging about, as Marco pointed out, that big, that big chart that shows the GPU speed that goes up like a big hockey right. stick. Look how far we've come. The A8X, is so, its GPU is so incredibly powerful, and yet they're still shipping the second dot on the graph, the second lowest one, right? And it's like, well, it doesn't help me because if i got to make a game that runs on that second dot, I don't. it's actually frustrating to me that the A8X is out there because now i got to make a game that like right. scales from... All the way out at the, I can't believe we used to live like animals like that end of the hockey stick curve. Yeah, like we'll, we'll just remove texture mapping in that version. It'll just be flat shading um 
But I do think that there's a general, you know, the gist of it is if you're an iPad app or, you know, a modern iPhone app, you can more or less assume that you're, you, you have access to about a gig of memory if you, need to, if you need it. So I feel like this, I feel like the iPad Air 2 getting two is, uh, is a sign that if there's split screen that it'll, it'll get it, and I don't think the other ones will. Yeah, and it's just, it's just time for two gigs. Like it's it's kind of uh, sad that the iPhone doesn't have it, but at the very least, you can make some kind of battery life excuse for the phone. Right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, maybe like it's like it's borderline. They they made it a half a millimeter thicker, and they gave it two gigs of RAM. It would be a different device, uh, but you'd have more. Yeah, and there's a there's a Quora post. I haven't linked to it from Daring Fireball because I feel like it's a little. I I don't I can't verify it myself. And it seems a little bit too rah rah Apple, even when they, even when they don't, even when they don't put enough RAM in the phone, it's it's all good. But the expert, if somebody asked on Quora, why why did the new iPhone six only still only have one gigabyte of RAM, when a lot of the top top shelf competitors on Android have two, uh, and like the top ranked answer was somebody saying that it's it, there's probably a whole bunch of other reasons too, but a big one is that. Uh, a garbage collected system like Java needs double the RAM of a non-garbage collected system like iOS. And that they linked to like an academic paper that showed how, you know, if you can give a garbage collected system enough RAM, it, it all just works out. But when a garbage collected system gets RAM constrained, it goes to hell and everything gets gummed up waiting for memory. Um, and I think there's something to that. I do think that the you know that iOS because it's not garbage collected can get by on one gig longer than it than like Android could have. But I still you know it's it's still irritating every time I go back to Safari and my tabs have all been flushed. Yeah, and that's that kind of that's the real luxury of buying the top end iPad Air two is going to get you. It's like oh thank God I can go back to Safari. A Safari is still running itself, and B the tabs that are in Safari haven't. Been I I just had I noticed with my review unit my first right before about an hour before the show I was flipping through your your uh, Yosemite review, and uh, it had finally gotten flushed from memory. But I hadn't been in Safari for a while. I had been doing a lot of other stuff. But it's yeah those. Big giant retina images that are in that review can yeah can do that to you. Yeah, that that was the first one that it, that had gotten flushed, and it was definitely noticeable. Uh, I think it's super interesting too that they've gone, they've so out now. I don't want to say outclass, but it's it's so noticeably faster than the iPhone six in any kind of benchmark because it has you know it's it's a faster faster single core, and it has a third core. Yep, and the GPU is more powerful because it has to push more pixels. And I think it may—I I haven't looked at the specs closely enough, but I think they may be like an overpower point where it's not just like the same speed as as the iPhone 6's GPU, but it just has to push more pixels. It's like it can push the more pixels and then some. Yeah, you know? and I—I I got to talk to—I just happened to be my seat in the event last week was right behind the. Uh, it was like front towards the front, like fifth row on the left, and the demo guys were all in front of me, like right in front of me were the the replay guys, and two rows in front of me were the Pixelmator guys. Uh, and I know the Pixelmator guys because they've sponsored. I think they've sponsored the show, but I know they sponsored Daring Fireball many times. And I've emailed them, you know, ever since the 1.0 came out. It was like, wow, somebody actually used you know Core Image and all these other cool Apple technologies to do the thing we've been talking about for 15 years and have an indie rival to Photoshop. Uh, so I've known him by email, you know, since forever. First time we ever met in person, I've 
was awesome to be able to congratulate them in person because what a you know what a moment you know you get to be on stage at an Apple event and demo your app. Um, and it ends up I know the replay guys a little bit too. I didn't recognize their names when they first got called up, but they've sent me you know just you know as the guy who writes during Fireball, they've sent me emails on various things over the years. Um, and you know we were right there in town hall. We had a couple minutes before they were going to kick us out, and they're you know they're not going to. Give me any kind of state secrets about what what life was like the last couple of weeks while they were working on this, but they you know they could speak a little bit. And both of them, like the replay guy, said that he thinks if anything, Apple has completely undersold the graphics performance of the A8X. That that when they, you know from what they were doing the last couple of weeks, getting the demo together for replay, that it was way faster than what Apple is saying compared to like the the iPhone six. It, that's the thing about the power on these like they're putting so much power into his ipad and building up to the next sort of the next sort of big leap like where we're going to have to we're going to be able to get a different class of applications but for, especially for graphics performance the, the the different class of application that you can get is a extremely graphically sophisticated game and you're never going to really have one of those on on the ipad air 2 because it's the same reason like when uh, you know when like uh, watchdogs or you know what what like uh, you know shadow of mordor i guess is a bad example because it's cross platform but any like modern console game that's out on the current generation consoles there's no Wii port of those cuz the Wii is standard definition and incredibly weak and there is no way to scale a modern PlayStation 4 game that all the way down to something that's that darn old like there's not you can't well we'll just use fewer vertexes and lower resolution textures and the game will run fine it's just not possible right you cannot take a game and scale that so any game that takes full advantage of the a8x i don't know if you can make a version of that game that also runs on the 249 yeah. ipad mini with an a5 and 5 uh, like there's nothing you can do to the game to make it run on that and so like you're kind of stuck you can never make you can never make an app that can really take advantage of that GPU because really I have to think either games or like scientific imaging yeah. are the only two things that you could do to really use the GPU like that. So it's kind of, it's kind of a shame that that you know I mean I guess you can do core image effects really really fast and the you know the A5 can do core image effects the same ones just much slower and that's how you can get away with doing something like Pixelmator on both platforms. But games I, I feel like people are stuck there that that and also if you those type of games that, that graphical sophistication costs so much money to make you have to sell a lot of them and i'm not sure uh that the touch interface is sufficient to you know be you know to, to sell a game like a 500 million dollar game like destiny for right. the ipad i i don't know if you could you could sell that with if people are going to be swiping on the screen this is great because now I, that i have a 10 year old son i actually I'm familiar with just about every title that you've mentioned, including Destiny. Do you have? Did you end up getting a PS4? Uh, no. You know what we have? Oh, you got the free got Xbox. The free Xbox, one, and it's. I don't know what to do about it because I kind of feel like the PlayStation Four looks like the better. The more time goes on, looks like it's the better platform. Well, so do you have Destiny? Yeah, we have it on the Xbox. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, pretty good game. Do you, have you played it? Uh, just, uh, just to toy around a little bit. I, I, um, it's, you know, I'm total like the old man learning to play video <laughs> games. Um, but it's, you know, it's really, really graphically. You should, you got Xbox. You should check Xbox live arcade. I think there was a version of crystal quest. <laughs> you <can laughs> tell you, tell your kid about it. Son, let me tell you. When I was a kid. This is what we played. Although you can't play crystal quest with a freaking thumbstick. It doesn't no, work. But anyway, work. you need a mouse. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do they really have it in the? Yeah, I believe. I mean, maybe not on the, the Xbox One, but way back when, either on the original Xbox or the 360, 
Cassidy and Green, I think it was the yeah. actual real company, made made a port of Crystal Quest for Xbox Arcade. I do think I do think though that this is it, it, games in particular. I do think that they're really pushing Apple to open up the App Store to to hardware limit that the app somehow. You know, if they already let you limit it by OS, I, I just can't see why. How it, it's getting to be untenable as they extend the life of these, you know, these devices. And that's the thing the the, uh, as Alan Pike called it, the zombie iMac, um, that $249 retina, not retina, I, iPad mini, the original iPad mini, which is from two years ago is really from four years ago because the A5 system on a chip and the 512 megabytes of RAM and everything is really, it's the iPad 2 shrunken down. Like the, oh, it's the, the iPhone 4S, right? Wasn't that the same generation as that? Yeah, it must have been around the 4S. The A5, yeah. No, I know. Right. My iPod Touch is the same thing. 512 megs of RAM, an A5 processor. Right. So they've actually, it's just in a weird way, like they've actually, the lineup I think only has a... It goes A5 at 249, but then it, it, there is no A6 iPad left. They're already gone. So it's it, it's like a year behind, an extra year behind the, the next step up. It's it's a really old piece of technology. Yeah, I don't know. Like, And again, we've said this, we keep saying this every time, you know, when Metal came out and now the A8X, or it's like, and the Apple TV... Te- get, playing video games on your television through an Apple device is like just sitting there in front of Apple for years. Yeah. Like they've got they've got every single freaking piece of the puzzle. They just don't have the desire to do it, which is fine. Like you can't be in every business. Maybe they don't feel like they want to enter that fray, but as they accumulate the pieces, especially with Metal and the Apple TV and like the, building their own ARM chips with these crazy GPUs in them, like I, I I don't necessarily recommend that they go for it because I don't think they're really equipped to compete in that space. But it's just so weird to see them. It's kind of like when it was back at the ebook, uh, the dawning of the ebook era around two thousand one, two thousand two, and it was like Apple's got these iPods and they've got a way to sell things digitally online with the iTunes Store, and like they have all the pieces to dominate the ebook space. Like they basically, you know, this, I think this maybe even before the Kindle came out. It's like, or maybe around the same time the Kindle was e-ink. It wasn't quite the same thing. It's like, why is Apple not? You know, the ebook market is there for for the taking for Apple. They have all the pieces. They have the momentum. They could they could do it. Uh, they're just not interested. And eventually they kind of like, yeah, I guess we'll do ebooks too. But then it was too late. Amazon was the dominant player, and iBooks is kind of also ran. And the gaming space obviously has been heavily populated for years and years, but here's Apple just dutifully working to essentially build the ingredients of a world-class gaming console platform, and then just not not doing that. Yeah, it's you know? it like you said, it's laying right in front of them because the A8X, I think the A8 is probably pretty good, and you could make a reasonable gaming console out of it, especially with metal. Um, which you know, again, talking to you know developers, you know, it, it, Apple calling it ten times faster than OpenGL seems fair. It seems like in you know real world. People- well, no, that that's a BS. Well, thing, because they, it's it's ten x and like you know if if you do something stupid and you, you're just measuring draw calls, it's like it's a it's a micro benchmark. But like, but the thing is that type of low level API, every game console has something like right. that on it. Like Apple, Apple has its own something. Well, like that's that the question. Th- that's know. the that's the advantage Apple to modern Apple today has is that they have enough developer support and so many customers that they can get developers to use their thing. 
to port like to port all their game engines you know the unity and unreal 4 engine and everything like we'll make a port solely for you know so they can sell ios games right, right? because that's a, that's a big market they make a lot of money off that so all those engines are saying yeah hell yeah we'll we'll make a port of our engine to to metal and then everybody who builds games on our engine will be able to take advantage of right. it and like like to build a full-fledged console either they have to do something like wimpy like the not wimpy but like lower powered like the playstation tv or something because the a8x is not going to compete in power with the playstation 4 but there's no but there's no reason that apple couldn't build a device that competes with the playstation 4 it would not be just an a8x in a box but like by making the a8x and metal and having a store and talking to game developers and getting the engines ported to their technology shows that if they wanted to they could make a product like this that is of similar power to the PlayStation 4, whatever the next generation is, and decide to compete in that space. I don't, I, they just don't want to, which is fine. Like, it's all about what do you say yes to, what do you say no to. Like, that the recent Tim Cook interview where he keeps saying, like, there's plenty of things we could do. We have plenty of great ideas, right. and we don't, we don't not do them because we're not capable of them. They just choose what they want to do, and thus far they have not made this choice, just like for all those years they chose not to enter the ebook market. So, well, or even honestly, even chose not to enter the phone market. I mean, people were clamoring for an Apple phone ever since cell phones became consumer priced items. Yeah, well, that's because like they hadn't figured out what they wanted to do for a phone yet. Like they had all right. those different competing internal projects and everything. Whereas the game console, the reason you don't do it is like, well, we just gonna make another game console like everybody else. Like they've seen like they don't want to enter the space until they feel like they have something significant to add. Right. And with the iPhone, they didn't enter the phone space like they did the Motorola Rocker and all that silliness. But they didn't feel their own phone that was just like a candy bar phone. Right. They didn't enter the space until they had something. Right. So even though their candy bar phone would have been the best candy bar phone, they just didn't do right. it. Right. And that would have, that would have hamstrung them because that would have made introducing the iPhone harder because then you got to transition people. What about my old Apple phone? I liked it. What is this new thing? Blah blah blah. Whereas if the iPhone is your first phone, no problem. Yeah. I and lastly the the performance thing. And you know again, I, I don't often go to benchmarks when I write reviews, but I really just think it's so fascinating how quickly the high end iPad is gaining on the low end MacBook Airs. And again, it's not apples to apples because OS X and iOS have so many different interface things and just rules about multitasking and how much stuff can be going on in the background. And, and how much RAM you can get like a MacBook Air with like 16 gigs. Yeah. Exactly, which can have an enormous performance, you know, especially not, not even benchmark, but just real world, you know, benchmark, you know, real world advantages because when you're switching between these things, you know, they're all still in memory. Yeah. And I would have to think the the SSD storage on the Airs is also fast. Like I think this is the first generation of iOS products to use PCI Express for the uh, the SSD connections. I I had heard that as a vague thing. I haven't seen like an iFixit teardown right. show that's the case. But like, but they've been doing that on MacBook Airs for a while. But but yeah, like it's, I heard that, it's I saw I there. saw a thing on Twitter last night. Again, not verified. It's I didn't. It, it's not like somebody showed pictures of it. But yeah, somebody seemingly reliable said it's PCI Express which is, you know, it's desktop, you know, when they say desktop class performance, they're, they're, they're actually, they're not hyping it. They're, they're being serious. And that's what, like, that gates, that type of stuff, the more boring stuff, if you're not playing a game, the thing that gates your performance on just using your iOS device is amount of memory you have and how fast the storage is. Because what do you think it's doing when you're launching an app and right. quitting an app and launching this app? Like, it's not, the CPU is mostly spending its time waiting for IO during, during those times when you're waiting. You right. Know? Yeah. Which is exactly why I splurged and got the the SSD storage for the the iMac. I feel like my last spinning hard disk that I've ever bought, you know, is in the past. 
I, I would like mine to be in the past, but they are not yet in the well, past. I, well, other than external drives that I would use for like backup or something like that, where I'm not going to be waiting on it as a as a user. Even then, like at work, my, my machine has SSDs for all the stuff that I use, but my super duper clone is spinning, and it's just so painful. Like how long a super duper clone <laughs> takes. It's just you know, it's just like read from the SSD and then just like go get a coffee. Oh, you, the, the spinning hard disk wrote? Okay, I'll read one more thing from the SSD. Like, you just see super duper. It's so, it's so asymmetrical. So I would love to be all SSD, but unfortunately, I keep accumulating stuff, and the SSD is kind of put the re- hit the reset button. I'm like, storage used to be scaling with my with my digital hoarding, and then SSDs were like, oh, no, yeah, actually, set you back. shrunk everything way back. Now. It's just now barely catching up again with one terabyte SSDs. Right. Um. All right, let me take a third break here and thank our, our last uh, sponsor, another longtime friend of the show, our good friends at Squarespace. And they've got a uh, brand new Squarespace 7. It's an all new interface to Squarespace. You don't have to do anything. You just, it's not like a new product you have to sign up for. If you're already on Squarespace, you can just opt in to get the new interface. Um, but they've done an enormous amount of work. It's a huge upgrade. Uh, and it's all of it is to make things simple, simpler and easier while retaining the power and complexity of the Squarespace platform, right? So what is Squarespace? It's you need a website, you go to Squarespace, you sign up, and now you have a website. And they aim to solve all the basics of your online identity by providing easy, beautiful solutions um, for your website, for email, for images, logos, domains. You can do your domain registration for them. Um and everything that they've learned from the millions of websites, and that's they have millions of websites people have built using Squarespace, and they've looked at where people were getting stuck with what Squarespace was before, and they've addressed it. So some of the new features they've added in Squarespace 7, they have um, uh, title pages, cover pages. So if you want to put like even brand your product, you're, you're, you're using Squarespace to promote your product, you got a brand new feature, you can add a cover page, sort of like what Apple does with their homepage, you can have a cover page that people will see and click through before they go to, you know, your regular homepage. Uh, all of their editing stuff they do instead of going into a separate mode, when you're logged in, you can just drag and drop to edit right there on your actual website. It's a lot more WYSIWYG. Your website will look exactly like you arrange it. You don't have to have one window where you're in editing mode and a second window where it shows it and you have to keep switching between the two windows and reloading to see it. Uh, you just do it right there in place. They have new tastemaker templates. They're working with cool musicians, artists, architects, and chefs to develop new templates that cater to each of those professions. So whatever field you're in, whatever you're building a website to promote, they're expanding the range of templates that are automatically laid out uh, to integrate with what you need to, to give you an interface that's exactly what you would want if you are, say, setting up a restaurant, a restaurant website. All sorts of cool stuff like that. Where do you go to find out more? Easy. You go to squarespace.com uh, slash Gruber, G-R-U-B-E-R, my last name, squarespace.com slash Gruber, and they have a discount code when you sign up. That's just my initials, JG, 10% off. So go to squarespace.com. Check out all of these. I can't I, – I would – take half an hour to go through all these features in Squarespace 7. There's so many of them. Go there, check it out. They've got a great, great demo set up to show you all the new features, far better than I could describe them. So go check them out at squarespace.com slash 
Gruber. So let's talk Yosemite for the rest of the show. Sure, 140 in. Let's start. <laughs> My son calls it Yosemite. Yep. A lot of nicknames. Yosemite, I think he says. Uh, this is exactly, it's funny, I didn't think about kids, but that was exactly like what people said coming out of WWDC's uh, the keynote is, people don't know how to spell Yosemite, people don't know what Yosemite is. And then when my son started talking about Yosemite, I was like, huh, well, it doesn't really matter. It's free, it's not like they need to sell it to people. I think the the visual thing, I, if there's anything that maybe I thought you underplayed was talking about the visual redesign. Um, cause I know you care, but it's, it's also a hard thing to talk about. You think I underplayed? I spent a lot of words in that. That's like the, the longest section in the review. Uh, it could have been longer in my opinion. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's cause you know what? I guess the other thing too, is that you, it, you know, that they're not, it, we're, we're going to have something, they're going to improve it and next year's will look a little better and it'll look a little better. But you know, I think you know, this is basically what we're looking at for the next, you know, at least probably a decade on the Mac. Yeah, probably. Like, I, I forget what I put in my review and what I cut, but one of the things I mentioned in the, the most recent ATP is, like, there's this thing that Apple does when they have a new uh, fancy design that they like. Uh, they did it with iOS 7. They did it with the original Aqua and, and 10. They did it with, you know, the various looks in between, like brush metal. Uh, they tend to err on the side of going too far yeah. with look, and then they back it off later in response to complaints. And so, like, iOS 7 is the most recent memory where they had the super thin fonts, right, and everything was just, you know, maybe a little bit too precious, uh, and the, the parallax effect and the zooming right. and everything. And so you add the thing to reduce motion. You thicken up the font a little bit and you, you make adjustments. And that was mostly done before release. Uh, with, with Aqua, the original version of 10.10 was just crazy pinstripes everywhere, super glossy and lickable, all faded and soft lighting, like everything was shot with Vaseline on the lens. And they backed that off over years, hardening up the, the edges, toning down the pinstripes. And then Brush Metal came in and everything was freaking metal. And the, the, the version of toning that down was getting rid of it. But like going too far and then backing off is preferable to them, it seems, than not going far enough, like being timid. So Yosemite is, and I, and I kind of bemoan that in the, in the review or the part that I cut from the review <laughs> that, that I don't remember what's in there anymore, is saying like, wouldn't it be nice if we could skip that part where they go too far? <laughs> And just go right to the part where they tone it down a little bit. And maybe they feel like they don't know where they need to tone it down. Like, remember, like the checkbox to make the menu bar not translucent? Yeah. Because the translucent menu bar, the original one in Leopard, was just crazy translucent and it made everything unreadable. Yeah, totally unreadable. And now, now they feel like they have the confidence that, like, well, this menu bar won't be unreadable because we have this crazy algorithm that will, like, blur everything together and is aware of contrast. And it will just look muddy and indistinct, but it won't be unreadable. So no more checkbox to disable that. And it's like, you know... Uh, there are places where they went too far in this and there there are a bunch of adjustments that are already there but none of them sort of none of them tune it to be the way we hope it's going to be in the next two revisions yeah right that's it i i a few hours before the show started i linked to koi vin's um review of yosemite you know most focusing solely on the appearance uh yeah, no you hurt my feelings you said it was your favorite uh well, I, that's a, yours doesn't even count. I mean, yours is... Uh, yeah, nice. No. All right, anyway. Yeah, no, I, I, re I read his thing when he originally posted. But yeah, that, I mean, it's a, it's a sim similar sentiment. Yeah, OS ten Balboa and OS ten Palisades are going to look great. And I think that is totally true. I'm I'm basically on board completely with the 
the basic style, but there's definitely some toning back that I think needs to be done. Also, my, my big complaint that I just complain about on ATP is like the, the transparency effect. Like I spent a lot of time explaining what the different kinds of transparency are, how they work, and then here's how they're deployed in the OS, right? And all the stuff about the rearrangements of the UI and stuff like that. And then I had this whole section called philosophy, which is I kind of tried to isolate the part where I'm going to like try to unpack this. Like, here's what it is. Here's what it's looked like. Here's where they use it. And then it's like, why? Why Why is this there at all? What is it about what's behind my menu bar that adds to my life, right? And, you know, why do I need to see that? Why do I need to see any of that, right? What is, you know, like, because there's always some kind of philosophy behind it. Like, the original Aqua, it was like transient elements were translucent. Yeah. So sheets just appear briefly and go away. Yeah. Drop-down menus appear briefly and go away. Those are translucent. It's, it's a temporary. It, yeah, uh, there's a logic to it. Right, but then on the other hand, the dock, which was always there, was also translucent. So it's just like, well, F you, translucency is cool, right? <laughs> so, And here, like, you know, I, several times I've asked Apple about the effects, and during the different keynotes, they've said, here's why we do it. And they have reasons behind them, and I have to, like, look at those reasons and say, like, is this a reason for you to pollute all of my sidebars with the color of the desktop ba- background? Uh, like... Sometimes their justification can work out, but other times I, I like I don't buy it. Like the whole thing of making the the you know the the temperature and mood of your desktop background influence the look of your OS sounds like I mean it, it's a it's a thing that happens. It works. Like if you if you have a super orange desktop background, all of your your you know behind window blending translucent regions are going to have a tinge of orange in them. Your menu bar is going to be tinged orange. All the menus pull, you pull down are going to be tinged orange, right? But like. I don't, you know, that that aspect of personalization, like, I don't know, it maybe just flies in the face of tra- tradition or whatever. Like, if I have a desktop picture that I want, I want my gleaming, beautiful interface to be on top of it. I don't want that desktop picture. Like, I may like it because it's a nice picture. I like it. But what I don't like is its contribution to the sidebar of my email client that now looks like a muddy, rusty, tinged orange thing, whereas before it was crisp text on top of a background color that the app designer had Yeah, it changes what it means to pick a desktop picture because before it was, okay, what do I want to see when I've got nothing open? Like, I'm done. Like, let's say, like, as you complete your what you have to do today, you keep closing windows and you're closing tabs and, you know, you can quit your email because I'm not going to check it again. And now I've got nothing and I'm looking at my desktop and this is a picture that makes me happy. Uh, that's all you had to do when you chose your desktop. Um, now you've got to pick something that's going to make, like you said, like make the sidebar in your email client look good when you don't even see the desktop. And and then this and, is a point I have to I have to, do, to to put it in ATP terms. I have to do some follow up because when Guy was on last week, Guy English, and we talked about this, we clearly confused the hell out of a lot of people. And because we were talking about the way that if you have like a stack of white windows, just like text edit documents. And then you have like mail in front of them. And the sidebar of mail behind it is just a white window. It still takes a tint from the desktop. That's what Guy and I were talking about. And that does, in, in terms of not really making any kind of logical sense in the world of physics, we weren't, what everybody seemed to think we said was that it doesn't take any cues from what's right behind it. So if you, yeah, it's mostly, it's mostly what's behind yes. it with a touch of the desktop. It's mostly what's behind it directly in the window behind it. So if you have like a real vibrant purple, um, uh, image, you know, grimace from McDonald's is in the window behind you and your mail is in front of it, you're going to have a purple sidebar. Um, 
But I end up a lot of times with a lot of white windows. You know, I have editing documents and stuff like that, or a you know, mail client or iChat or something. Yeah, but 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 God forbid you have like a Safari window with with like a dark black blob and then some white stuff, then the the black blob starts showing. Right. And if it's not like not like an entirely black window where it just makes the whole thing look gray, if it's just right in the middle, there's looks like there's a smudge. I see it in the messages app every day with when I have transparency on because there's my blue messages are always on the side. And so up at the top right, there's this blue blur about it, you know, ranging from like an inch or two that doesn't extend across the whole bar. And it bothers the hell out of me. Yeah. Here's the analogy I used on, on ATP last night, which I probably should have also uh, put in the review, but didn't. Uh, so there's this whole section section on extensions. And I go, I go through a little bit about the, the old days of extensions where they would just invade the memory space of either the OS or other applications. And even into the OS 10 days of just like, you know, every app that launches loads a scripting edition, which just like runs wild in its memory space and does some crazy hack to, you know, enable window shade or whatever it's going to do. Right. Uh, and the idea that uh, you would write a program as an application developer, and then you would test it and debug it and make sure it works correctly and then hand it to somebody. And then someone else who you'd never met would write a program that invades your program and changes the way it works and causes a bug in your program. And then you get like a support ticket or like, hey, your, your, your text editor has a bug. And it's like, well, no, I totally test that. It doesn't. It's like, oh, well, I'm running this extension. And, and this thing written by someone you never met invades your application and changes the way it behaves. And now it's buggy. Uh, you have to fix it. It's, it's an untenable way to develop software because how can you it's like the halting problem how can i know what's going to happen when some program i've never seen before invades my program and changes the way it's behaved it's impossible for me to write a quote-unquote correct bug-free program in this environment the develop the, the designer equivalent of that is i'm going to make an application i'll make it look as good as i want but i have no control over what windows are behind it or what color the person's desktop background is right. i've just got to trust apple to try to make this into something readable and then i get back to the you know why why is it what is it about the sidebar like i can i can I can buy pull down menus. I can buy sheets. I can buy, you know, transient things that are floating in. But the sidebar seems so a part of the content of the application. Like maybe if it was a slide out drawer like the old style ones that I could say it was transient and maybe it should be translucent. But there is nothing about sidebars that says to me, please show me what's behind you. Right. Like they're filled with text. Like they're sourceless. They're text that has to be readable. I do not want to be distracted by the other stuff there. And so, I mean, I, I don't know. There's no option to turn that off except to turn it off everywhere. And I pretty much at this point, I feel like I'm I can on board with the way they use translucency, even with the stupid tinging and all the drop down menus everywhere except for sidebars, because it just seems like a bridge too far. Yeah. The other thing I don't get, I don't get the other use of it. I don't get the in window transparency, you know, like in Safari, where all the Chrome at the top of the Safari window yeah, picks up. The, there's a little bit more justification in that of their own doing. As I said, I'm pretty sure I said this in the review. Once they made scroll bars invisible. Yeah. The only way you have any indication that there's stuff above or below is if you see something truncated or if you kind of see this dim, you know, wavy image of things that are above or below. And that bothers me less because toolbars tend to have a stronger boundaries, like the toolbar buttons themselves don't let stuff show through on them. So they're going to be, you know, light, uh, dark markings on light backgrounds, well-defined. There's nothing in the toolbar itself that I need to read that's going to become illegible and, uh, like just scrolling through the review, like you can kind of see the reason they did this, and it's one of the one of the justifications of the philosophy section is that this looks nice, like that it's fashion, that it's yeah. aesthetics. And if you scroll through my Yosemite review, and when I look at some of these screenshots, I think some of them are really pretty. Like yeah. 
the, the multiple docs with the different backgrounds, or even when I'm trying to show something that I think is a negative, like the same Safari window where I just change tabs and it radically changes what the entire interface looks like because yeah. the pages are half scrolled up behind the scroll bar. That is a little bit crazy, but the image is beautiful. I think like this has the most interesting screenshots because of the all, you know, I, I purposely tried to show things in both the best and the worst light, like get it to be most aesthetically pleasing, but show what the extremes are. I think it is a really interesting thing to do, and but I can only excuse it as long as it doesn't start impinging on usability. When it does impinge on usability, you better have a, a good reason other than in some scenarios it looks really good. I know in your scenario it's ugly and you can't turn it off, but in some scenarios it looks good. Right. And that that uh, still bothers me. Yeah. Well, and I, I just... Uh, I, I guess I like the in-window transparency a little bit more than the behind-window transparency because there's a little bit more, uh, like you said, with the scrolling and a sense of, hey, there's stuff up there. There's some kind of logic to it, whereas the sidebar transparency it just, just seems mindless to me. So I think, yeah. and I've been, as I've gone full-time Yosemite, I think I'm probably going to run with the uh, the reduced transparency option. In, uh, yeah, and, and that bothers me because that, that I think I mean it does. As I pointed out in the review, it it does look okay like that. Like it still looks handsome. It shows that this is a sturdy design that does not rely on transparency parlor tricks to look nice because it looks it looks perfectly nice and it's solid, especially on retina screens with sort of fine hairlines about things. The contrast is still a little bit low, but otherwise it shows that there's there are you know there are sturdy bones underneath this design. But it's a shame to give up all the transparency effects that I like just to save that one that I don't like. Yeah. And the other thing that bothers me about reduced transparency is those are in the accessibility preference pane. Right. And those things are there to help make the interface more usable for people who need that. But I, I feel like designers are not sweating as much over what things look like with that turned on, both third-party and Apple designers. Right. Like that it that it looks clunkier, that it looks more like, like in the way that Windows is like, well, we'll just do this and I'm sure it'll look fine and you look at it and there's like details that aren't right. They're sweating over what it looks like in the default mode. I don't think people are sweating over how any application looks with reduced transparency on. Like right down to like the overlays for volume changing where the, where the little corners don't have transparency in some situations. Have you seen that? Uh, I don't think so. Let me see. I should oh, not have told you about oh, that because... Oh, yep. So now, now can you leave that option on? Like it's it's totally counter to the super Apple nerd Ugh. aesthetic. Everything has to be beautiful and elegant. Like that stuff like that is around if you know where to look for yeah, it. That's horrible. Because... Because accessibility is not meant to be like it's it's first and foremost is supposed to make it more usable at the expense of, you know, perfect aesthetic beauty. So yeah. there is one of your expenses. Maybe you'll think more about that option. Yeah. Now. So when you change the volume and you get that, what is that, like a HUD? What, it, what would you call it? The temporary yeah, like a little overlay. The, or whatever. the rounded corners are just filled in with black. Because <laughs> it's, it, it's the transparent part of whatever that thing I'll is. I've got to call know? that. I bet that's a bug that they'll fix, but it's it's a definite sign. But that type of thing, like if you were to file that as a bug, hey, when I enable this yeah. accessibility option, this thing doesn't look as nice. They're going to be like, yeah, but it's, right. it's, you know, it's more, it's, it's easier to see, right? Stuff doesn't show through, right? That's the point of the accessibility feature. So feel free to file that bug, see if they cl close it as behaves correctly. <laughs> I will. I will. Um, I thought, like you said, I would love to be able to pick and choose and just turn it off on the sidebars because I like the transparency on the menus. I think it, it makes, it looks good and it makes sense to me that it's temporary. You know, it's, it's just a little thing that while I choose this menu command, it's floating over my thing. And now that they're solid, I just checked it right here in front of me. It's, it, doesn't look yeah, as nice. the, the text rendering changes, especially on non-retina. The text rendering changes when you go solid on on the menus as well. And the the menus, the thing that bothers me about the menu is the tinge of the desktop. Like I like the overlays, 
like the volume changer when transparency's on the sort of ios 7 overlay when you pull up control yeah. center from the but like it doesn't bring it doesn't pull any colors from your desktop background it's just simply i am white slightly translucent with that cool blur effect yeah. i wish the menus were like that because all of my desktop pictures are making my, my pull down menus uglier like i'm gonna have to change them even though i love the pictures that are there just to pick one that has a different dominant color so that dominant color i can you know, st stomach the side of in all of my pull down menus. Did you turn on uh, increased contrast? Did you play with uh, that? I haven't used it like that. I've obviously, I turned it on for screenshots I, and stuff. I feel like that one, like, I, I know what you're saying that it looks like System 6, but it looks like System 6 made by someone with not a lot of attention to detail as things collide with each other and there's no spaces between things because they just sort of draw with a magic marker over the edges and don't re, they don't change the metrics. So it, it's like crowded to There's me. a whole bunch of things that I think look better. Um, and a whole bunch of things that clearly look worse, just at, uh, in terms of whether it's pleasing to me. And I realize, like you said, this is it is under accessibility for a reason. I can actually see clearly how it is an accessibility feature for some people, but I actually like some of the the details of it. But there's others that you know I can't. I, yeah. There's no way I could rock it full time. It's and and the low contrast that like it's basically the default where everything is super low contrast. Doesn't it remind you? Speaking of IE five, like the days when we were all using bitmap fonts and everything was like, well, you're still doing it. Like light gray text on a dark gray background, and you know, in in ten point Verdana pixel fonts, and every like everything was super low, and it would, you could just make it so precious and beautiful. But then when you when you move back from the screen, it just faded into a uniform gray haze, and you don't notice it so much in Yosemite until you turn on uh, increased contrast. You're like, whoa, those hairlines now jump out at me and now there's clear delineations and like the toolbar buttons don't fade into the toolbar as much as they used to. Right. Like it goes too far on the other direction, but you only notice the low contrast of Yosemite uh, when you turn on the high crank and then turn it back off and you're like, whoa, now I feel like I just, my night vision went out and now everything's fading into one big blur again. One of the things that most surprised me about Yosemite when they unveiled it at WWDC was that uh, the general control, I call it a control panel, system press panel, where you control the basic appearance stuff, you know, graphite and blue, highlight color and stuff like that. I, I, my gut feeling was that they were going to get rid of all that just as, you know, go more like iOS. Like you don't get to pick a highlight color in iOS. You're going to get blue and you're going to like it. Or the app is going to override it. You don't get to pick whether you get blue or gray as a highlight color. Uh, you don't get to pick the color that get, you know, when you select text, what color is the highlight of the text? That's the other thing about increased contrast. It changes your highlight color, too. Yeah, to something that I seemingly can't quite figure out how, what the rules are for. Um, I thought they were going to get rid of all that because I thought that was sort of, that's such an old school consumer, you know, uh, 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 feature you know that you get like the way windows used to let you pick everything you know you could yeah, yeah. totally design you know blue with with white trim or you know you could make windows look just truly god awful but they'd let you do but, it but the thing they have in there the things they have in there are there for reasons that haven't changed like for the, the whole reason graphite is there is because like they're essentially bowing to pressure from graphic designers who felt like the candy colors were throwing off their color sense and they they you know as i think i pointed out in the review it's such a such a multi-year big fu to all those designers who were like you've got to get these candy colored aqua widgets out of our face it's totally destroying my ability to you know these colors look different when they're next to other colors i need something that's neutral or whatever so apple said fine here's graphite and they gave they made everything a blue tinged gray right. 
which was like just, which is worse. I feel like for throwing off color balance because if you if your mind believes that it's actually neutral gray, but it's not, there's more blue in right. it. It's gonna screw you up way worse than primary colors red, green, and yellow. We're gonna. But, I, but anyway, I now, used, now the gray is more neutral. I loved it, though. It was almost as though they let me pick, uh, like, a blue-tinted gray. It was, like, right down my alley. Yeah, no, but, it, like, it's, it doesn't, it's not really what they asked for. And right. so now, now with graphite is now now much more neutral gray, and it's totally boring. But for people who want something that's neutral, it's fine. But, like, no, they went in the other direction. Like, they said, okay, we've got blue and graphite. And also, by the way, you can, you can do this crazy dark mode that we sort of half-heartedly did to match our pro apps. Like, again, you know, that I asked about that, and they're like, it gave a bunch of different reasons for it, but like the the one that has the most weight is like pro customers wanted this to match their pro applications that are also dark because they're like they're looking at video all day and they don't want the white menu bar and dock staring them in the face. So here's a dark mode. I but I thought as and you you must have stayed up to date with the betas over the summer. I thought that they actually called it a dark mode, and it seemed like a hint, like when they unveiled it on stage at WWDC, that it would be almost like everything Windows uh, that all sorts of stuff was going to go dark. Well, so there's a couple of reasons why they didn't do that. Like er, early on in the in the betas, uh, in the general control panel thing, like the the same control was there, but instead of being a checkbox. It was a theme pop-up menu. So it was like, I forget what the words were, like whatever word is next to the graphite aqua picker. And then there was another picker that it was a pop-up menu of like theme and it was like regular and dark, right? And that became a check mark, which is kind of demotes it from like, oh, this is not theming. This is not OS theming. This is just a check mark option that tweaks how certain things look. And you can't go full dark, I think, for the same reason even just making the menu bar dark was a problem because now you have all these third party and, you know, Apple's own in the beginning. Uh, menu bar icons that draw incorrectly yeah. when when because they you know because they drew bl- draw black on top of black and you couldn't see anything and a- Apple's own had to be updated and the third party ones had to be updated. Multiply that problem by about a bazillion if you tried to change the entire interface to dark. Right. How many applications draw with black and if you put them on a black background everything's invisible. So that was just not going to happen. Like the appearance manager in those days, you had ways to you know every, if everyone was using the appearance manager. You could make sure that your app looked good on any possible well, be, crazy kaleidoscope, right? Thing because you, you didn't. You, if you embraced the appearance manager, you never picked. You never said draw black text. Yeah. You said you always drew with like a theme brush or whatever the right. API was. You would was, say, "Give you know? me the text color," and now draw in text color. And you didn't have to know what text color was. Whereas now you see a lot. You know, there's clearly going a lot of apps that like. Yeah, and I mean, Coco was like Coco was not made with that in mind. And you know, certainly when Jobs came back, the theme stuff was canned, even though the APIs were still there. And so like. You know, as I talked about, there was there was this brief period where it was explosion of theming on the Mac community. But like, even though that tech was there and people took advantage of it, Jobs was against it. Pretty much closed the door on that. And now you have uh, an ecosystem of applications that are not prepared to be on a system where the system look changes in radical ways. Right. I mean, it's hard enough for Apple when they change the look to make sure, like, you know, if you drew a custom control, now it looks wrong and everything. And and there's all sorts of other. I, I don't know. It's even after even though that they've cut it down and it's just used dark menu bar and and dock um it's like the the selection co- the highlight color for the menus in the in the dark mode it it's not right to me it yeah that's another uh, you know vibrancy attempt because it's got tin- tinge with the desktop right. background but also like a you know sort of inverted type thing it's it's weird and sometimes it looks a little you know it looks a little sickly sometimes it doesn't you know it doesn't it doesn't have the pizzazz of like their big theme in the regular the regular look is this very light gray lighter than normal not a lot of gradient to it and this really powerful kind of like 
it's like if Pepto-Bismol was blue instead of pink, that's what the blue looks like, right? <laughs> right. It's like really like chalky, thick, opaque blue, and that's your highlight color. Uh, whereas when you go dark mode, it just kind of becomes this like pale moonlight that's shining on your selected element. It does not doesn't make as powerful a statement. Yeah, and it doesn't even invert the color of the text. So I mean, and you're seeing that because you're running in in graphite mode. That's what we're talking about here. In case people are confused, if you run in non change your thing from non graphite and change the dark mode and then pull down a menu, it looks much more. It looks much stronger in that. Mode. Yeah, it it look well. It looks horrible in in graphite mode. It looks okay in blue mode, but it still doesn't change the color of the text though. Like in regular yeah. mode, when you have like you you hover your mouse over the new you know file new, then new goes from being written in black to being written in white because the blue is so vibrant. But yep. in the dark mode, they don't change to like, they don't invert the text. It's just, yeah. Cause it's too, it's too close. It's not, right. it's not clear that the background is so different that you now you have to invert. Right. Like it's too, yeah. and then it, I mean, and that's, that's the whole thing with the vibrancy effect. They kept showing that WWDC, like they would show that, Hey, if you, if you draw text with like, a, you know, again, the, you know, the text color type thing, draw on a, on a vibrant background, we will adjust the color of the text to make sure that every part of the text has the has enough contrast to be readable. And so the text color changes because like behind what you can see behind the fiber and background is whatever the hell is behind it, whether it's a window or the desktop background. So you can't just pick one text color. You have to sort of adjust the text color as you go along in sync with the the, the whatever is behind it to make sure that this letter on the right side of this sentence is a totally different color than this letter on the left side because the thing that's behind it is different and they're trying to finesse that and, and again i have to ask why what's the point text is supposed to be readable just put it on a background where you could where the developer of the application can control the foreground and the background color and we can all read the friggin' text i don't need to see what's behind it why <laughs> I, I hear you. I, I'm surprised. I'm still a little surprised that they even have all these options. That they didn't just say, you know, Tarway or the highway, and you're gonna get, well, you're gonna get blue, and you're gonna like it. Yeah. So like, it took us from 10.0 to 10.5 for them to just like brush metal is gone, uh, pinstripes are gone. There's one window style. The buttons look normal. Nothing is too transparent. The the menus. I mean, I remember they like the transparency of pull down menus was so extreme in the beginning and then by the end like by leopard and snow leopard time frame it was practically opaque it's like why even bother at that point like i can't see anything through this it's almost entirely opaque white right so you know it in 10.15 expect all this exuberance to have consolidated into one more conservative but yet still recognizably yosemite-ish look yeah, yeah I, and, and there's a couple of things they, they get right i think the new dock is great and I, I, you yeah, called that, that out. Here's what you wrote in your review. Setting aside the particulars, the Yosemite dock exudes a visual confidence that has been sorely missed in the last few releases of OS X. Like, I, I, to me, the dock exemplifies what Yosemite is shooting for. Yeah, and as I said in ATP, it's the ideal scenario for you to show off vibrancy yeah. because the icons are so, like, you're not going to lose them. No matter what crazy crap is going on with the background, let me show the screenshot of, like, look at, look at how green it looks here. Look at how blue it looks here. The icons stand so proud of that interface. You're, they're not going to get lost. You're not trying to read a bunch of text. Uh, and you have full freedom on that background where otherwise no information would be conveyed to show off, hey, this cool effect that we've done, this vibrancy thing where we blur and pull forward different colors and saturate it. It looks beautiful. It's interesting. Uh, and it, you know, it conveys this is kind of a, a piece of glass or translucent thing laying over stuff like that is the ideal environment for this for this type of effect, uh, because 
it doesn't impair anything at all, really. And even, like, the parts where you hover and you get the text, those, they gave dedicated backgrounds that say, okay, well, now it's time for you to read text. I'm not going to mess around here. I'm going to give you what is almost, you know, a fairly opaque, light-colored background with dark, you know, text on top of it or the reverse in dark mode to make sure you can read the text for the hovers and everything like that. But the dock itself will just be like, we finally figured it out. No more ridges, no more weird frills, no down on an angle and shiny things on it, no reflections of the windows that are going above it. Like, yeah, it's been a long road for the dock. And I think the Mavericks dock is it's probably the best 3D dock because it kind of like that, that you know, not brush metal look was... I mean, something else in the parlance of yeah. the, the Mac, but like sort of a matte finish metal type of thing. The 3D effect still just does not work and should never have been done, but that one at least has the most class. But I was like, we're done with that phase. Here's what the dock looks like. It looks the same vertical and horizontal. This is the dock. They even got rid of pinning, which is kind of a shame, but that was never a documented feature anyway. What was, oh, pinning top and bottom? Yeah, yeah, instead of having the dock centered on the edge of the screen, people love to pin it to the top or the bottom. And I, I suspect that may be one thing that they reverse on if they get a lot of complaints about it, because even though it was undocumented, the people who have been doing it have been doing it since, like, you know, whenever that whenever that undocumented feature was added, whatever developer preview, that's... You could say it's undocumented, but once you've been doing it for, you know, yeah, it was like a, 10, 15 years... It yeah. was like a default right thing. Yeah, you just... It, it, you yep. didn't have to hack it. You just give it a preference. It was, you know, a preference that you just put it into terminal and and then it would yep. take it i remember that com com that apple dot doc pinning starter end or whatever it was right what's that app from the guy in germany that's just it's just like a front end to all the hidden preferences i i like secrets which is from the guy who made quicksilver oh uh, right yes a, inter internet shared database of those type of things but there's a million applications yeah. that will you know either show you what those commands are or run them for right. you um i think and it again i i i shouldn't say it's underplayed because i think it's it, it's obvious, but that this interface is so clearly de designed retina first and how it looks on non-retina Max is, you know, we'll make the best of it, but it's so clearly a retina first design. Um, and I guess I should have, it should have been a sign. Like when we saw it at WWDC, it should have been a sign that retina, like this would be the year that we're going to get retina IMAX. Because I don't think it's a coincidence that they're debuting at the same time as as an interface that so clearly is is uh, meant to be seen on on a Retina display. But e even if we weren't getting a Retina desktop Max this year, they still have to design it for Retina. Like you have to be forward looking. Right. Like, there's no sense in making a brand new look for the Mac at this point in time. Even if Retina weren't going to be out for two years, you just have to. You just have to say like. You have to be forward-looking about this, like which is why I hope to God whatever new file system Apple must surely be working on is made entirely with SSDs in mind, like screw spinning disks. I know they're still around. I know people are going to use them for years, but if you're doing something now, yeah. you have to be forward-looking. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, that's a good point. That it would it would make sense, maybe even make it so that it doesn't even run on uh, non non SSDs, and it, you know, you'd still use eight, yeah. use HFS plus till the end of time on your spinning hard disks. Yeah. Don't spook them. We just want them to release something. <laughs> I think that the choice of Helvetica, or or as they say, uh, Helvetica Noia, um, in particular, is is the clearest sign that it's meant to be seen on Retina first. Because as I look at Yosemite on a non-Retina MacBook Air, it's the type that really annoys. Yeah, people are upset that I didn't make more of that in my review. And the reason I didn't make more of it is because I truly believe most people will not even notice. I know that is inconceivable to right. those of us who are like type nerds. And I'm not even that big of a type nerd, but it bothers me because I have non-retina Macs and it's just not like... And you might you might have non-retina Macs for a while. 
right but but like but even like i am not as bothered by it as you are and as many other people are but i truly think regular people will just absolutely not notice the, the text change. Even if you put it side by side, they wouldn't notice because people are just not sensitive to that. Maybe if you had changed from like brush script to like, you know, right. uh, Cairo, people would notice, but like <laughs> people just do not notice that you change from one sans serif font to another. I can notice, I noticed that it's not really Helvetica Noia. It's it's a system font. I'm not, I still haven't found where it lives. It must be somewhere in slash yeah, it, system it, it, library. It used to be available in the font menu in the early betas when they took it out of there. But yeah, it's hiding in there. And it's it's the mutant one, not for any reason that like makes sense from like well we wanted to make a readable system but it's because they had to make the metrics match right. so it's kind of it's kind of perverted by the, the need right. to match metrics so i think it's basically uglier than it needs to be so it's the same width or close as possible yeah i think that's exactly it it's well and it works a little better and it's a little bit of a concession or not even a little bit i actually know that they spent an awful lot of time once they decide okay we're going to go to helvetica and we've still got all of these non-retina Max that we're going to support for years to come. And in some cases they might even be selling for years to come, right? That, that, you know, the, who knows when the Mac pro is going to be able to support Apple branded retina displays. Um, MacBook air rumors say is going to go retina soonish, but um, it's, you know, it's got to support non retina for a long time. Uh, they spent a lot of time tweaking the, the metrics, not just to make it match Lucida, but also to make sure that as you know, that it fill at, at the sizes that it's used as a system font, that it hits the pixel boundaries as often as possible. Yeah, because otherwise you get LL and hello becomes just one big indistinct blur. It looks like a really thick capital I or something. Right. Like, and my favorite example. So there's a lot of a lot of apps. It's a standard menu in Coco, the format menu in the menu bar. If you look, at least on a Retina display, I don't know, I don't have a Yosemite uh, non-Retina, but on the Retina display, at least the R and the M, there's clearly some space between them. Whereas if you just open a text edit document, set the font to Helvetica Noia, it's like 16 or 18 or whatever it is, and type the word format, the R and the M are going to touch and it's going to look, you know, unless you know, you know, it's just one of those, you just have to know the word. You can't tell which one's the M and which, you know. It just all looks like a bunch of humps next to each other. Yeah, and it's not a ligature, you don't think? It's no. just, a, just, just the kerning. Right. It's the, the, the default kerning for Helvetica Noia is tight enough that the word format at that size is yeah. the, the R and the M are going to blur together, which is one of those things that people who don't like Helvetica don't like about Helvetica. <laughs> uh, what else? Like the word window even is sort of it, – it kerns differently if you use real Helvetica Noia, you know, the way that the W the, – the slantiness of the W – you know, has space next to it with the I that the, the dot yeah. in the I isn't going to get lost in the W. It's very thoughtful. It makes me wonder why they don't use that. I guess it's because of the metrics. Why, like on iOS, they just use Helvetica Noia. There's no special version of it for the system font, to my knowledge. Yeah, and the iOS line has, again, with the exception of the, the zombie iPad mini, the iOS line has... Uh, been in retina longer it's yeah. more of a comfortable type of thing and you know again forward looking like we're going to make these devices they're, they're all going to be retina soon enough because the screens are small enough we know we can do it design an interface especially ios 7 like design an interface that is uh that's that's aimed at a world where all the devices are retina because they're going to be that way really soon yeah um one of your, I, I, we'll finish with a little bit of swift and then we'll call it a show because it's it's been a long time but um 
I, I, from your review, from my notes review, on page 16, you wrote, among a certain set of Mac enthusiasts, it was a point of pride to have many rows of icons filling the startup screen. Now, that's a reference to the classic Mac OS where, you know, like when you, this is the whole section where you're talking about old style extensions that just <laughs> ran in the memory space of every app. Uh, or in the system space, you know, just system-wide. It was all, it was all the same. Right. There was no system memory. Right. There was just, <laughs> it was just one pool of memory. Car- it was one giant memory right. region carved up into pieces where you're supposed to stay in your little section. Right, and it made me laugh because I remember thinking about that, that like when I first started becoming a Mac nerd, it was absolutely a point of pride to have as many of those as possible. But there, there was like a – if you kept going and – became more informed and a little bit more mature. It started becoming, at the highest levels, it became more of a point of pride to have as few of those things as possible. It, well, the, the pride in having a lot of them wasn't so much that your machine was so tricked out, but that you had figured out the correct load order and incompatibilities that you could actually run this many and they all worked. Because there was always like, well, you got to load this first and this has to be there and these two are totally incompatible because if you enable this one, you have to disable these two. But this one you can still keep as long as you move it after that, like it's what Conflict Catcher was made for. Like that not only right. that, you, that you had all this software in store, but that you had figured out how to make it into a stable system. And then, yeah, eventually you stop, you get sick of spending your time playing with Conflict Catcher and you're like, do I really need Adobe Type Manager? Do I really, really need it? How many fonts do I actually have? And like, you know, something's got to go. And Adobe Type Manager is big, so ATM goes out the door. But you know, you... Uh, see, I always had to run ATM because I, I was doing I was doing design work. But ATM was a good example where what was the character we had? Everybody. I mean, it shipped from Adobe with like I think the tilde character in front, like the extension yep, was yep. Tilt, yep. tilde ATM because on the old Mac OS, tilde sorted alpha alphabetically first. Because it had to load first, yeah. or was it last? Uh, I forget it, if it was first. Yeah, I don't last. remember. But yeah, but that was that was the you know that and and putting funny characters in front of things in your Apple menu folder, Apple menu items folder to make you know right, spaces to make and them stuff sort like in a that. different order. Yeah, but that was that was a very different world. And like, but that if you live through that, you you understand like the the whole thing with extensions uh, is. <laughs> For iOS, it makes sense. Like iOS is so buttoned down the whole time, right? And we're all like, we we want ways to extend the system, like you know, keyboards or like having share panels include our stuff in it. All these things is like, come on, we need a way to do this. So they they made a way to do it for iOS, right? But on the Mac, even in OS 10, we didn't have these memory patching extensions, but we had, you know, we had all sorts of people had found ways to do things, symbol extensions or the mock inject to get your code in there. Like it's not like the Mac needed extensions. OS 10 has extensions, and but the reason that Apple said, we're going to make this extension system for iOS. It's going to be safe and sandbox and all the, you know, things that we're doing. We're also going to do it for the Mac because this is part of the unification of the platform. Why should we not have this in Mac? And the, and the, you can't, the excuse can't be, well, the Mac's already got ways to extend it. Yeah, it's a crappier way and it's kind of dangerous, but we don't need to bother with that. Not many people buy Macs anyway. The new Apple is, if we have a, an awesome way to make extensions, we're going to deploy it everywhere. The Mac's going to get it. The iOS is going to get it. If there's a way to do it on the watch, that's going to get it too. And that's that's a different philosophy. And like if you live through the bad old days of these little rows of icons, you understand deep in your bones what is wrong with letting other people's software enter your memory space and screw with your applications. And so any type of extension mechanism that avoids all those evils yes please bring it to the mac not because we can't get you know extensions now like we have all these weird extensions that can do weird things to your mac even in os 10 we just want better ones we don't we don't want we want never want to be close to recreating that bad old world of those those rows of icons yeah we want the feature and it's but we don't if you're technically informed at all you don't want the 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 
buggy ramifications of it. Yeah, I backed off. Like, I, I used a lot more memory patching extensions in the early days of OS X. A lot of it to, you know, backfill functionality that wasn't in the OS itself. And I've just slowly pared those things down. Like, I ran application enhancer APE from the Unsanity guys. I ran that right. for years and years. But then at a certain point, it was like, enough is enough. Uh, I, right. I'm, I'm only using it for one or two things. I can live without them. Like, Window Shape was the last one to go because I really, truly love that. And I wish I could get it back now. But, uh, clean hooks into the OS with real APIs that don't involve invading the memory space of another process. That's what we've always wanted the whole time. And now Apple is finally providing that. So I hope every, every existing Apple mechanism is there's still ones Apple supported ones of like, you know, text input methods and all sorts of other things that actually will load. You put something in a special folder, you launch your application and the fra- the cocoa frameworks will look in that folder for your thing and load it into the application. And you're supposed to be well behaved and not do anything nasty. And, you know, but like, <laughs> Not supposed to implement something that changes what happens when you double click at the top of any window. Yeah, but like once you're in there, like that's why, right. you know, scripting additions were like a gateway yeah. into the thing or the symbol extensions. Like, you know, we have all those things, but some of them are officially out. Even like the menu bar icons. I, 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 someone was trying to correct me on this, but I'm pretty sure someone can send in a correction to you if I'm wrong about this. That if you write a badly behaved menu bar, you know, icon type thing, you can crash crash system UI server because you're kind of in the mix there. Maybe maybe that's not the case now. If you use NS data bar instead of the NS status item instead of the the menu extras thing that's supposed to be undocumented. But anyway, there's still lots of officially supported Apple things where you can get your code into someone else's memory space. And all of those mechanisms, I would like them to make a officially supported you know, separate process extension mechanism, like all the, you know, the, yeah. the ones that are in Yosemite, because I like all that functionality. I'll like it even better if you can make it safer so that a badly behaved extension can't crash my app. Yeah. The, um, the part of your review that I thought I was a little surprised that you spent as much space on it was, uh, Swift. And it, after reading it, it made all the sense in the world. And I thought it was really, really good. I thought it was, you know, but that's why I like your reviews is you're, you're, you always surprise me with something. Because I didn't anticipate you writing that much about Swift because I didn't see Swift as a Yosemite feature. I just yeah. saw it as something that coincidentally was a 2014 thing that Apple did. And, you know, iOS 8 and Yosemite just happened to be the first new OSs that, you know, that you can write yeah. apps for with it. That's like uh, I was mentioning on, on ATP, like I found myself at WWC sitting in metal sessions and taking notes. Right. And I was like, what am I doing? This isn't this isn't an OS 10 technology. Metal is for iOS only. Like, why am I even bothered? But like, it's because I was starting to view everything that Apple did not as like, oh, this is a Mac technology, this is an iOS technology. But like, these are Apple's platform technologies. And even though Metal isn't on the Mac now, there's no reason it couldn't be in the future. And even though Swift is not specific to OS 10, it's just as applicable to OS 10 as it is to iOS. Right. right. I mean, uh, the other reason, of course, I made uh, such a big section out of this is. Uh, two reasons one there's always something that i put in the review that i know almost nobody cares about but that i write a whole big like disproportionate amount about it. maybe not as much as swift but like you know i wrote a whole section on launch d at one point right no one no one freaking cares about launch d except for me so you know like that it was interesting to me and i was like i i, I give myself that right and the second thing is because i have a personal history with like the whole clamoring for a new language and everything and i right. was going to have my say and i was going to do it in my os 10 review and people could just deal with it I think your take is interesting, and it's the reaction that people at large have had to Swift is curious to me, because I see an awful ever since WWC and continuing until now, I see an awful lot of criticism uh, from developers of uh, about Swift that to me just seems uncalled for. Like it's 
It's the first version. They just came out with it. It's going to get better, like all programming languages do. Like the thing is, though, is that they're showing it to us by Apple standards extraordinarily early, and letting us letting our here's what we're thinking. You know, here's our idea for the next generation language for writing apps for our platforms in a very early stage, and then they. They've already incorporated a slew of feedback from the outside. It's to me, in a broad sense, it's exactly what we've a lot of us have been hoping to see from Apple, not just regarding developer tools, but just Apple in general. Of don't don't be and you've written about this numerous times. Like don't just take seven smart people and put them aside and let them work for five years and come out with a thing, because no matter how smart they are and how talented they are, they're going to have their own personal idiosyncrasies. Are, are, are going to lead them to overlook certain things, you know, that, that they wouldn't if it was exposed to the world at large. But now here, you know, they've, they've finished it and they've given it to us and here it is, right? Like if they had been working on Swift for another two years and then came out with it but said, this is it, it's final, it, it wouldn't have incorporated all sorts of things that they're incorporating. And, uh, but, it, but they're, getting, they're getting flack for it, like the fact that it's changed so much just since WWDC. Well, I think you've kind of made their argument for them in some respects. So there's, there's two parts of this. One is that a lot of things about Swift are not are fundamental to the philosophy embodied by the language, mostly having to do with like how how uh, how method calls are bound, like what implementation happens when I call this method, or basically method calls instead of message passing or whatever. Philosophically, late binding versus early binding, and Swift is is wants to have everything statically figured out. It needs to know what code, what code you know. You type something here, it looks like a function call. What implementation does that actually run? Swift wants to know at compile time. Objective C, its runtime was like, oh, it's all dynamic dispatch. I can figure out what it is. You can do method swizzling. You can right. uh, form method names out of strings and call them. That philosophical divide is not something that's going to be changed with a tweak to the language. Right. Even though Swift can use the Objective C runtime if you if you uh, subclass Alvanus object and knows all this stuff. Anyway, that philosophical divide, dynamic versus static that's that's just an, a, a, an honest difference between people who like that aspect of Objective-C and the people who design Swift who are saying that type of dynamic dispatch makes whole classes of optimization impossible for us because we can't see through the call boundary to understand how we can optimize across, across that call because we don't even know what the hell it's going to call. And so that's a philosophical difference. And no amount of tweaking is going to change that. And the second thing is the idea that they're putting it out early and then doing doing these tweaks to the, like the, the minor details and stuff like that you know, the complaint against that, possibly by different people, uh, you know, which is why Apple really can't win here, because uh, you're not going to please everybody, is that, hey, Swift is great and all, but it would have been, like, they they think that it was basically, uh, these guys went off and seven smart guys came out with this thing. We really would have loved it if you had built a major application with this language first hmm. and then presented it to us. Like, if you had dogfooded it longer because if you had dog fooded it you would have found all the same exact things we're finding and like how many times have they tweaked how it interacts with like core foundation and objective c apis like the various idioms of how because they didn't write all new frameworks they need this language to work with their existing frameworks and, and it's not quite an exact match so they have to come up with conventions for like when you call one of these things we're going to do this and we're you know, like all, all these different conventions of how to handle in out error parameters and mapping between optionals which exist in swift and like nil and you know because there's no optionals like that in objective c and how do we how do we uh cross those boundaries if they had used swift to write a major application uh that in the, this, so the argument goes, they would have figured a lot of this stuff out on their own instead of bringing out bringing it out to us so early. It seems like this was kept really private to a small group of people, and now you're throwing it on top of us, and we're like, oh, it's not ready. Now, 
that's kind of self-contradictory. Like, what do you want? Do you want to see it early, or do you want it to be done, or you you don't you want to have feedback? But you you know, different people want different things. It's not like a single person is trying to ask Apple to do things that are completely contradictory. It's different groups of people want right. different things out of Apple. So. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think of that too. I think of what Objective C looked like in 1989 or whatever, and what Objective C looks like now, and like, the, and the the pace of development of Objective C has accelerated so much in the past few years that I'm willing to give Swift a lot of leeway to get things right. But philosophically speaking, if you have a disagreement, like you know, the, the yeah. dynamic dispatch and everything like that, that I don't see, you know, that's just going to have to be in a disagreement because I don't think that's going to change that much or, you know, cause it's like the idea is like, is it dynamic by default and we could tie it down or is it static by default and you can make it dynamic. And Swift is very much in, in the camp of static by default. And you have the ability to make certain things dynamic and other people are like, no, no, you got the defaults wrong. It should be the other way, but it's, they're coming from different places. Yeah. Reading your, your review and, and what you had to say about Swift and I, I love it. It, it it's to me, it's, it's, you know, the right way to have about this. Like you even admit that there's aspects of the language that you as a programmer aren't to your liking. You're not, you don't like, um, uh, having, you know, the, the, uh, static, static typing. Static typing. Uh, but you don't, you don't take that as therefore it's bad, right? <laughs> Statically typed languages are bad. It is a perfect, you know, that's, so much of the internet is is not being able to acknowledge. Okay, I disagree with that. I dislike that, but that I I can acknowledge that that is a valid a valid philosophy to have. And especially right? since they stated their goals, like right. they said, this is the type of language we want to make. And you can evaluate Swift and how well has it achieved their own stated goals. And then you can also like like I said, a lot of the arguments against Swift is like maybe you disagree with the goals. Then fine. Then what you could say is you should never have tried to make a language that is as convenient as a scripting language, but you could write whole OSs in it because you you make a crappy is like a jack of all trades, master of none. Like feel free to argue with the premises in the mission statement, but that is a separate argument which you can have from if I accept this mission statement, you know what? How well does Swift fulfill that mission? And what were the how did it do it like that's the most interesting thing to me because i think the mission is incredibly ambitious like i said it's a totally an apple move like it is very gutsy and very ambitious and not because it's not doing what everyone seemingly who's complaining about it wanted to do is like just make me a better nicer objective c that's all right. i want don't try to make some crazy language that you think you can use for everything like that you could you know because if you look at the the software stack like you have things that are written in c and even in c plus plus and then you have things that are written in objective c and why are these three languages there it's like well but the really low level stuff like the kernel and like you know, maybe even like you know core foundation and like then you have to use C and C plus plus for those things. But then for like the higher level frameworks, those are in Objective C. And Swift is saying, why can't we have one language that spans that whole range? Why can't right. we have one language that maybe we're not going to write the kernel in it just yet, but we could if we really wanted to? Because we wouldn't but have to. We wouldn't have to worry about a performance hit. Right, because right. It, it can be as fast as those low-level languages, but it can go all the way up to hey, you just want to type a bunch of stuff and you know you want to do you know. Uh, you know, hash bang user bin Swift and just start typing. Like, yeah, like and you want to create language. you want to create a string just by typing, uh, you know, quotation mark. Here's the string. Another quotation yeah, mark. Like, and all, all all the things we love about JavaScript or Perl or Ruby right. or Python, and make one language that spans that whole range because and it's an ambitious goal, and it would be great for Apple if they can pull it off because then it's like, hey, finally, we don't have to hire C developers, C plus uh, Objective C developers. 
and and maintain a compiler that can compile all three of those languages but have different standards you got c99 c++ 11 and whatever the hell we're doing to objective c if we could just make one language that we control everything about that it's our thing that spans the entire range of our things boy wouldn't that be amazing yeah and maybe they're biting off more than they can chew but i admire the ambition and my question is how the hell are you going to do that and so i wanted to delve into how do you make a language? It's easy to make the parts that you type. Like you could just say, blah, blah, blah. Our language looks like this. Here's the keywords. Here's the syntax. And then we'll just write a compiler that makes, turns that into code that runs. And it's like, that's the hard part. You know, how do you, how do you get from something that looks like JavaScript or Perl or Ruby or Python, but is as fast as C. And that's what I spent the entire section of this review delving into, because I think it's interesting and uh, definitely a change of pace from the way Apple has done its, you know, compiler software in the past, and certainly a change of pace from the way JavaScript runtimes are implemented, or Java runtimes, or certainly Ruby, Python, Perl, that stuff. Yeah, it's it's evident, and it's funny because you know so many Apple employees are just n- never in public and never named, um, and you know who knows how influential they are inside the company, but you know because Chris Latner started the LLVM project outside Apple, you know, and then they more or less, it's, it's weird because it wasn't a company. It was an open source project, but they effectively Aqua hired him when they bought it or, you know, effectively bought the open source project um, when they brought him in board. But he's, you know, that's clearly to, you know, it's very obvious. Like you said, that, that there've been imp- the, the rate of change of objective C improvements over the last few years has been impressive. Well, it coincides with the LLVM era. Yeah, because they, they, they got the comp- they they took control of the compiler, brought the you know what they should own and control the key technologies for right. their platform. The compiler is one of those technologies. Why are we using GCC? It's hampering our ability to extend the language, it's hampering our ability to optimize, it's hampering our ability to make our IDE. They have this multi, multi-year transition, slowly, slowly getting away from GCC to be uh, completely on an LVM-based compiler, and then like they're off to the races. Right. And it's like you said, you have to look back to what are the goals of the project. GCC is a fantastic project. It is one of the most successful computer science projects in history. But its stated goal is to be a universal compiler for any and all platforms. And the fact that it succeeded at that is why it was there for Next to use when they started bolting on Objective-C features to C back in the 80s. It's the fact that GCC was there and aimed to be universal. Um, was the reason that they could get it to work. But then the fact that it's universal and it's, you know, is this apparently convolute, you know, really, really impenetrable code code base uh, eventually just really hampered their ability to, to move the language forward. And it was also old, like it's an old code base. And right. and then anything you did, it's kind of like doing anything with W3C, you know, even worse, yep. actually. Anything you did, like it kind of has to be, your needs aren't the only needs here. There are other stakeholders and you kind of have to get agreement from all parties involved that this is the thing that you want to do right. because there's just one code base, whereas Apple doesn't need anyone's okay to do whatever the hell they want with their uh, compiler. And it's not quite like that. There's Clang and that stuff. That's a C, C++ compiler. Those are open source. Uh, there are other people that are using them. Apple can't just do whatever the hell they want with that type of thing because then they'd end up with a fork because other people would be right. like, well, I don't want Apple's Clang. So they're sensitive to that there. But thus far, Swift is not open source and not open. And that's another issue people have with the language. Uh, it's entirely theirs. I don't know if that will change in the future. I know there are people inside Apple who want it to be open source, but there are, you know, that is not high on their priority list, apparently. Like right now, they're just, you know, get, yeah. get iOS 8 out the door, get get Yosemite out the door, get the language in ship shape and then revisit this issue in the future. I, I don't think they'll do anything 
like that until it settles down until, you know, Swift of this year is nearly identical to Swift of last year. See, I don't think they need like that. That is, I can understand that the desire to do that, like the motivation, like what makes you feel like, let's just, you know, let's just table this until we get our, our, our stuff together. Right. But but compare it to WebKit though. WebKit was like you know open because it came from khtml yeah. it was always open and did it did it impact like well we don't want to make we don't want to show webkit to the world until it settles down well they show webkit to the world as soon as they announced safari and right. it was definitely shaky and weird and it doesn't seem to have hurt webkit development no. so like i think it can be done it's just a question of it's like it's a question of priorities and like there apple has never been the greatest open source citizen in terms of like you have complete access to our repository and you can see our changes in real time they just do dumps like they right. do their work it's hidden away and then they release the product based on it and then there's an open source dump and that is not really the way that everyone wants open source to work right. but it's, it's sure better than never giving the code at all yeah the gist of it is that the more i learn about swift and you know get past the intro, you know, chapter one of the Swift programming book, just, you know, hello world type programs. Um, it's, it's evident that it is exactly what you would think it is. It's a language designed by a compiler guy, which is interesting, right? A, and comp- a compiler guy who likes C++ a little bit. Yeah, it's, it clearly <laughs> comes through a little bit. I, I mean, think. LLVM is written in C++ and LLVM is, you know, like, so it's, it's obviously everyone who uses C++, anyone, anyone who uses any language. Uh, for a long period of time comes to hate that language, but yeah. also kind of like it. I yeah, mean, like, like the longer the longer you use it, the more you're just like the parts that you hate just grate on you, but you also kind of like it. So like Swift has a lot of the, the things in it. You're like, this person clearly hates a lot of features about C++, but also kind of thinks some of them are kind of okay and just like, just like, boy, I wish they had been done differently. Yeah, but it's, 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 it's so obvious. And I think the details you delve into make a lot of these things clear where it's... It, it, it's never academically precocious. It's not, this is clever. This, you know, which is like when, when you and I were younger, a lot of the new languages were, were like Dylan or small talk or lisp. Yeah, exactly. That it's know. like mathematically pure Haskell these days. Right. Well, lisp predates us. Lisp is from the fifties, but there, you know, the, that, that, that whole derivative, that whole realm of languages, Dylan's a perfect example. Cause it was, I think it came up in the nineties, but you know, it was academically interesting, but it, yeah, like it was like a, a, a purist viewpoint on something. Yeah, like how would how would you make Mac toolbox calls from Dylan, right? Whereas Swift is like the the whole purpose of this language is like you, you have we have to be able to call into the both you know we have to yeah. call into the C C plus plus and Objective C frameworks that already exist. All right, so you know, and we have to be able to work with like NS object and the Objective C runtime. And by the way, we also, even though it's a memory safe thing by default, we also have to wait to do unsafe pointers because sometimes we need to do that. Like, totally pragmatic because it can't it can't afford to do anything else. Like, its mission statement is to be this language that spans this huge range, and it spans this huge range because guess what? Apple has a bunch of existing code in that huge range, yeah. and if you want to interface with it or someday replace it, you have to span the same range, and they get to use three languages and you get, or four languages, or depending on how you count, like, you know, C++, C, uh, Objective-C, and then, like, shell scripting or Python or, or even Apple script or whatever. You want to try to span that whole range? Uh, you're going to have to be pragmatic about what you're willing to do to your beautiful language. Yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of the languages that are popular were not designed by compiler guys. Larry Wall was not a compiler guy. I mean, it's, you know, it was, he was, it was the replacement for like a bunch of shell scripts and, you know, TR and said and awk. And, you know, is I would just, he, it, more or less, it was, here's the syntax I'd like to be able to write to do these things. And then he made a thing that did them. 
and I think, you know, uh, and like you said on ATP, then a lot of for decades after there's been a lot of work of well, how do we make this crazy language fast? Oh, not so much for Perl, but like JavaScript right. is a very simple. Like, oh, this syntax looks kind of right. like Java, it's not really. And uh, by the way, we'll make some way to run it. Right, and it, it was no consideration to how to make it fast, and then the result was an interesting language that was pretty approachable for most people who can program, and it was dreadfully slow. And yep. it's been, like you said, millions of dollars and like three, four, five major generations of how are we actually going to run JavaScript, uh, you know, to get to where we are today, where it, it runs at a reasonable speed. Whereas Swift, you know, being written by a compiler guy, maybe the preeminent compiler guy in the world today, has it just reeks from top to bottom of this is going to be fast. Yeah, or, C, or, uh, C was written by compiler guys too. Like the right. languages that look like you know, right. you know, portable assembly, like where you can see where it maps. It, it, it's not that rare for a language to be written by a compiler guy, but it's rare for a high level language. Right. Well, that's exactly it. Guy. That's exactly it. Where it, in fact, C looks like it's written by a compiler guy because it looks that it looks like compiler, you know, input. <laughs> it looks like like an intermediary format. <laughs> it, 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 you know, you could you can squint at it and see the assembly code that corresponds right. to that. Especially, especially with like Cisc CPUs back in the day. Yeah, and especially if you look at older C code, you know, from the 70s and 80s before some of the, you know, slightly higher level features that got added in, you know, later versions. Um right, it's it's on its sleeve, it's it's a, you know, this is made to be easy to compile. You, know. you should you should read. You probably didn't because it's ridiculously long. But one of the th one of the many 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 things I linked in the review was a link to that awesome WebKit uh, blog post about the fourth fourth tier LLVM uh, optimizer for JavaScript. Mm -hmm. Try actually reading that whole article because they it, like they take you through it. It's really really well written and like they lead you through it a piece at a time. And you'll probably get like fifty percent sixty percent through it and realize they haven't even gotten to the part that tells you the new thing they did. Everything they've just described so far that is blowing your mind is existing JavaScript optimization features. They haven't even gotten to the fourth tier part. Like the the hoops they jump through to make JavaScript fast just make your head spin like every one of them seems so incredibly dangerous that it would be inadvisable to try and seems impossible that it could ever be made to work and yet that's, that's where we're all running in our web browsers right and it's you know on every platform every day every you know and probably i mean i, I don't see any way out of it where for the rest of our life yeah. javascript is going to be a part of it for the rest of our life i'm gonna plan on living for a long time but you gotta you got google with dart and everything like people take runs at it from time to time if anybody ever gets like it's like uh you know bitcoin if everyone ever gets 100 uh, more than 50 percent of the compute power if anyone ever gets like uh dominant market share in web browsers again which doesn't look like it's gonna happen but hey who knows they could replace it. They, you know, someone could seize the moment and be like, like Google's trying, try with Dart. Like we have a popular browser. How about everyone write Dart and we can pre-compile it. And it's like JavaScript, but able to be. And everyone's like, nope, sorry. You don't have that kind of, you don't have that kind of pull. We're just going to keep writing JavaScript. But yeah. I don't put it out of there. Like even like when I, when I look at Swift, I made a few sly allusions in the thing of like, oh, there's no reason that Apple couldn't say, oh, and by the way, you can just like you can write Dart and they'll run, you know, Google Chrome, whatever. You can put Swift code in, and if you load your in your web pages instead of JavaScript, and when we load them, we will compile that Swift code and keep the compile version. It'll be much faster than JavaScript because it's on that level of like it's not that much worse to use than JavaScript. I mean, the libraries right. are not up to snuff or whatever, but or even just server side web programming, like the places where Swift can draw is not not constrained in the same way as as Objective C or any of other, Apple's other languages. So. If Apple ever wanted to make that move and say, uh, 
you know, you can use JavaScript as your scripting language for your web pages, or you can use uh, Swift to do it. Like if you were going to make like an iOS-only web app where you knew the target platform could do that. Right. With a built-in library that's in the in the browser, you know, with a bunch of niceties. You yeah, know. and the, the compiler gets fast enough in the language. Like th 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 there are many things that are possible when this very new baby Swift starts getting mature. Like it, if they succeed in their goal to make a language that spans this range and that is able to be fast and everything, there's all sorts of places Swift can go. Like even just down to like the stupid shell scripts and Perl scripts they have that are buried inside the installer packages when yeah. you install software on OS X. Yeah. Uh, if, if Swift had a file IO library that was... Uh, worth a damn instead of having to use cocoa for stuff like the language doesn't preclude that they could right. they could make change all those scripts like you could really make one big unified language or it could turn out that 10 years from now we turn out it was folly to try to span that range with one language and it didn't work out right. but well uh, and it makes me it's funny too and it makes me think it's one of those things where it was like you know inside apple a lot of people don't know what was i mean no almost nobody knew that swift was going on everybody i talked to at apple was surprised by Swift's announcement as we were. That's why working for Apple is exciting. You're like, what the, what? The yeah. new <laughs> I but I, it's, to me, it's an unfortunate coincidence that it also happened to be the year that the uh, automation group added JavaScript support as an alternative to AppleScript. Yeah. Everywhere you could write AppleScript, now you can write JavaScript. It seems to me like a better idea might have been to hold off on that and wait until you can do it in Swift. Did you see the tweet someone had like, with the with the JavaScript automation, the OSA script thing, you can use the JavaScript automation to to call into an Objective C library that loads Ruby, and then you run Ruby code. It was like four languages in one command line, like showing like all the things. There's all these weird bridges, you know, because you can from from Apple from JavaScript uh, JavaScript automation, you can load Objective C libraries, and from some Objective C libraries, you can load the Ruby things. I guess from the Ruby Cocoa thing or whatever. Yeah, it is quite, and then just throw Swift into that mix too. They can interoperate with Objective C as well. Yeah, that'll well, sort itself out, I guess. I guess so, but it seems to me like the future of. I mean, I'm I'm always happy when the automation stuff has any new features, and because I'm always afraid that they're going to turn the lights out on on sales group. But uh, uh, so they, it's it's cool that libraries. you can use. What's that? They got libraries last year, right? Yeah, no, and, they've and, been and no. This I don't. Year they got JavaScript, so right. I, I I only say that because I just know that at a high level, Apple's interest isn't there. I'm not saying that year after you know the last couple of years haven't been good. I think the last couple of years have been great. Like script libraries have been great. Um, there've been you know, and I think adding JavaScript as a supported language is great. I just can't help but think though that in the long run, uh, there'll be more scripts written in automation scripts written in in Swift than Apple Script or well, JavaScript. For all of those things, and the reason you can have all these different languages, the problem is not the language, except maybe Java, uh, AppleScript, which is a gross language to people who want like a regular programming language. Well, and the problem is the problem is the APIs you're talking to. Like that's the hard part. Right. It's like you got to figure out what is the, what does this dictionary support? How do I? Can I do what I need to do? Can I address this window in a way that, that is reliable? Can I get at the the element in this window? Can it like it's all down to how scriptable the application is, and the language is just like a minor implementation detail at that point. Most of the time, you're fighting with the the scripting dictionaries of the apps. That, will they even let you do what you want to do? And what kind of weird hoops do you have to jump through? Well, I'm just thinking though that if they if they can eventually get it to be Swift, it would be easier to call into uh, like if you wanted to put like a a nib or a zib, however you pronounce the, how do you pronounce the XIB version? Yeah, zib sounds zib, fine to me. A zib file with your script that it's, you know, it would be a lot more, you know, just like, it, since Coco already uses it, it would be easier to call it from the scripting side too if it was the same language. Yeah, but then you're kind of doing actual real application development. Like you're not, you, right. not going to be able to call it. You still have to send Apple events, right? 
I, I guess so. I don't know. I mean, yeah. you do now. I don't know. Right. It's not the, like they're going to let you call natively into the, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. The, the automation story has always been a little bit weird. I think it's been making progress in recent years. So I'm kind of optimistic about it. I like the idea that like when they renamed Apple script editor to script editor, and now actually when you launch it, you can pick which language you want to be your default. And each window has a little pop-up menu that says it's a script editor. Do you want to write Apple script or JavaScript? Or Swift script, not quite yet, but like it's poised to, you know, OSA was always supposed to be multi-language, but for the right. longest time it was like multi-language in theory. And now it's finally multi-language in actuality again. So yeah, finally <laughs> it is final. It's a, that's an actual non-ironic, uh, non-ironic finally. Yeah. There's probably, I can try to think of what other languages that people have been using. Like people don't use frontier anymore. No, and, but that was one of them. Uh, well, and there was JavaScript, Mark Aldrit of uh, late night software, the guy be- behind script debugger. And, and he had uh, face span for a while. Uh, he had a JavaScript OSA that was built. I'm going to say Mozilla's JavaScript engine. Um, that, that worked, but it never really took off. And because I think it's the sort of thing where it had to come from Apple to really yeah. take off. And there were certain weirdnesses that, that using JavaScript instead of AppleScript, you ended up with tangled syntax that was like, what? And it, it would take Apple to fix it because I kind of had to, you know, it had to be fixed at the OSA level, not at the language level. Yeah, that's always been a little bit weird. I mean, it's like they're just the languages are so different. How can you how can you call the same things? And it's always just you know, especially when you're calling it other libraries again, because like you know, JavaScript can import the Objective C stuff, and then you're making Objective C calls with name parameters, but JavaScript doesn't have name parameters. So you got all these mangled things. It's just like the the Python cocoa bridges they've had and everything. Yeah. All those cross language things are weird, but OSA is always going to be cross language because OSA that's the whole point of it. It's open right. scripting architecture. Uh it always comes back to Apple script. <laughs> anyway, we've, we've gone on long enough. I think it's been a good show. I, I loved your review. Um, and ATP is my favorite show. Thank you. It really is. And it's all because of you. I always know. You're here's trying the to thing. make up for that, uh, the Koi Vin post. Well, here's the thing. I, I like Casey. I like Marco, but one of the things that's interesting about the ATP is that you guys often disagree. Maybe even usually one of the three of you is going to disagree. And whenever there's an argument and I'm listening and I know everybody out there, people often tell me this. It's like everybody who listens to podcasts knows this feeling where like somebody will say something and you want to jump in and, you know, either correct something they said was wrong or point out the logical conclusion of where this is going. And I, the thing that makes ATP my favorite show is that you're always there to do it. And it's so satisfying. Like I'll think, oh, I got to, I got to write to these guys and tell them that reminds me of something. And as soon as you have a ch- ch- chance to jump in nine times out of 10, you say exactly what it is that I was hoping somebody would say. Yeah. That, uh, it cuts both ways. I was just complaining. One of the after shows recently, I think I tweeted you about it. Like when you're talking about the 16 gigs of uh, flash, which we didn't get to talk about in the, in the iOS devices and right. how that, how this terrible, like we recorded an ATP and I called that move like a punitive mood on Apple's part. And then, and then you, before we could post our show, you either posted a blog post about it where you called it punitive or, re- or released a podcast about it where you called it punitive. And it's like, God damn it. Like it's an instance where we both said the same thing, but yours got out first. But wow. yeah, I know, I know the feel like, again, it's, it's, we, when I hear you on podcasts, I think the same thing. Like, we, we tend to think and say the same things and then it's like half the time you're excited to hear the other person chiming in with what you would have said if you were there and the other half of the time you're like i was just thinking that <laughs> don't get credit for that idea we i we 
shouldn't go on long about it, but we could talk about the 16 gig thing quickly. But I, I think if you want to stop dancing around the, 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 the elephant in the room, I think the bottom line is, and I think you guys even mentioned this, what it all comes down to is a, is a fear in the back of our heads that this is a Tim Cook thing. Because it really only makes sense. I think it makes perfect sense if you're staring at a spreadsheet of component costs and uh, profit margins and the combine that with a, a projection of how a 16, 64, 128 spread would push X number of people to get 64 instead of the lower price model than in a 32, 64, 128 scenario. It, from a spreadsheet perspective, it makes perfect sense. I completely understand every aspect of it, but in every other way, it is to me, it's it's a boneheaded mistake. But Tim Cook's the same guy going all on all the talk shows and TV stations and talking about how Apple doesn't do moves that are short term, is not right. looking for a short term stock market game, it's long term thinking or whatever. So he's saying all the right things, but like sometimes people just make mistakes. And like, right. like I said, when we were talking about this, this decision to go with the 1664, 128, like this decision was made a long time ago. And I think by now, when they're having the meetings about like iOS 8 adoption and storage space and stuff like that, like hopefully they're going to correct for it. Like they're not perfect, they make mistakes. I think they maybe just miscalculated. Like they were, they were dazzled by all the things that you mentioned. Like, yeah. boy, look, look at how we can push people up the product line, and it's pro and like, and in exchange, like, do we think there are any downsides to the sixteen? And they were able to convince themselves that the downsides weren't that big of a deal. But like that, still selling sixteens and still selling the A five with no way for developers to exclude it. I think the meetings they're having now, hopefully, they're discussing these things and saying going forward for the next set of things, let's not make this particular mistake again. Let's let's remedy this. Like there's a big lag time on this type of thing. You know, again when when they came out with the that that same range and when they came out with the iPads and it was the same range. It's not like they can learn that lesson between like no. when the iPhone like it's just, you know, there is a long turnaround time on this. And I'm hoping that it's this is not like, you know, a like them being duplicitous about the philosophy, but merely a mistake that they will correct going forward. I hope so, because my fear is that if they don't go to 32 next year, then they're already going to be too late with 32. And when they do go to 32, it's already going to be that 32 is too little. Yeah, and and the thing is, it it's on them to get this right because they're they're the company that does not add an SD card slot to their you know iOS devices, right? And right. so they really ha and you can't upgrade it, and so like they really need they really need to get this right. And they're doing things like m making cameras that shoot, <laughs> yeah, 1080p video, really and, like really credible 1080p video, like really good. Like you're not going to regret that. You know this and, is this is your your footage of your you know son's first birthday you know and time lapse and burst mode like there's so yeah. many ways you can fill up that storage really right? fast and the panor 41 megapixel panoramic images yeah which is great but which are huge yeah it's like count it's just yeah it, it, it's the I, I don't remember if this was the most recent episode of the one before but it's it's like the and you mentioned it when you were talking about how like this is the type of device where you have to give caveats when you tell people to buy it yeah it's like all of us told people who wanted to buy max back when max were first becoming popular we just always tell them back in the day like you can go get a power book they're really awesome but make sure you upgrade the ram they say really do i need to upgrade I'm like trust me by default it comes with an amount of ram that is ridiculous right. no and and we also used to tell them to get third-party ram because apple used to charge you a ton for it like those stupid caveats they used to tell how many many years did we spend telling people upgrade the ram don't buy apple's ram by third party it added a complication and a caveat to a recommendation that made it scarier for people yeah uh, and now it, that 
that type of thing is creeping back in where like don't don't buy the 16s you're going to regret it if you're asking me advice on which one you should buy you're the type of person who should not buy the 16 trust me save money for a couple more months and get the you know 64 yeah i i just can't i don't know it just irks me that there's and it doesn't bother me quite as much that like the lower end models that the old i you know ipad uh, minis are 16 but it really irks me that the new top of the line one starts at 16 yeah like there's no there's there's an unsafe model to buy in the flagship iPhone 6. Right. Like people who are only going to spend $299 on their iPad are kind of, I'm sure, going into it with eyes wide open that they know they're not getting the best and that they're, you know, that there's going to be some limits. Whereas anybody buying a, a new iPad Air 2, uh, I, I think that they should feel confident that no matter which one they get, that it's it's a good, it's, you know, good, better, best, not... And, uh, and RAM is the same thing. Like when they used to sell Mac models with too little RAM, it's like you're only hurting your own image, Apple, because there was nothing worse than a Mac with a spinning disk and too little RAM. Yeah. And it just didn't get better. Memory compression was the perhaps the only bump that actually made like the RAM usage get better, right? But every other thing, like three OS versions from now, that RAM is going to be even worse. At least you could upgrade the RAM until they started soldering it on. And once they did start soldering it on, I was glad that they bumped everybody up to 16 minimum and everything. Like they're finally getting on the ball on that. But now they just dropped the ball someplace. Yeah, else. and it's it's like I've been writing that it's it's like a brand thing, and it's you can't measure that on a spreadsheet. But the RAM thing with Max, like, and I know on ATP you said like four four megabytes of RAM, which shows how old the problem. I remember when four four megabytes of RAM was the baseline, and it was years past where any everybody else in the industry had gone to like sixteen. Um, it, but I think even to this day. All the way from the era when when they were selling Macs with only four megabytes megabytes of RAM to today, that helped fuel the image that so many people have that Apple price gouges people because everybody was told you have to upgrade the RAM and, and don't go, buy it from Apple. Don't buy it from Apple. Go to Crucial or you know somebody right. like that, and then and, get someone to install it or I'll install it for you, and, and feel like you're breaking your brand new machine because you'd have to do this thing that made a snap. You know, it, yeah. it never felt good. Um, but when you know, and you go and you'd say like, go to Crucial. Crucial has great RAM, and you'd Google some reviews, and everybody would say, yeah, Crucial sells high quality RAM. This is this is good. These are good memory chips. And then you see that you are saving six hundred dollars versus what Apple would charge you for the same amount of RAM. Yep. And it's actually it was actually true that Apple was price gouging you because you know that Apple gets better prices on the RAM than you do, or that Crucial does. Uh, and it, then they would they would be kind of jerks about it, where like they wouldn't service your machine if it had third party RAM in it and all sorts of crap like that. Remember those days? Yeah, yeah. You take it in, and they would you would have to you yourself would have to take out your third party RAM and like hide hide it from them. Right, keep it in your desk in an anti static sleeve or something like that. And I get and if, if you replaced all of the RAM, I guess you'd have to like go and find your old Apple chips that you replaced and put them back in. Yeah. And yeah. And this I, is not this is not a good product experience. It shouldn't be like that. And like they yeah, anything like that that just you never want to sell somebody something that you know three years from now they're gonna hate you for buying. Right. You should not sell the base model accord should not have trouble accelerating up a hill. You know. Yeah. It may not go anywhere near as fast as the tricked out high end model, but it's still you shouldn't have trouble with common things like driving up a hill. Yeah, it's just some some baseline level, and you don't want to skimp and things like that, especially that are weird and esoteric, and that you know, as someone who knows the technology, again, especially with spinning disks, can have such a dramatic effect on performance. There was nothing worse than early versions of OS X swapping. Like right. there was just nothing. It would just 
it would, your performance would go off a giant cliff and there was nothing you could do about it. And even if you told people like, we'll just run one application at a time or quit more apps. And it was just like, this is not the way it should work. And obviously you can't give all the RAM of the world to every machine, but the rest of the industry would slowly march up the minimum and Apple would stubbornly stay at whatever number they decided was the correct number for just years past when they should. Yeah, and it's it's less excusable now than ever because you know that they're getting the economies of scale and that they can get the best prices. Yeah. They're, um, using, they're using the same components. It's not like they have to get special RAM for their special PowerPC chips or anything. You know, right? I it's it's you know, and like you even mentioned it on ATP that there was a story that Apple's consuming like fifty percent of the world's. Uh, SSD storage or 25% of the NAND or whatever it was, whatever it is. But it's, it, I'm sure that's true and it's impressive, but it doesn't, you know, they're not just buying it in an open market. It's not like they're going, they, they, they are, they are a huge input into that market. They, they influence the market. They're planning ahead of time for like, they'll, you know, here's a few billion dollars, build a factory because we're going to ask you to buy the stuff for us and you'll slowly pay off what we loan you for the fact. Like, right. that's that's the way they do all their stuff. Right. So if they wanted to tell people a year ago, hey, we want to buy X million 32 gigabyte uh, chips because that's what they were going to put in the iPad Air 2, they could have had it. Every yeah, every 16 every sixteen gigabyte chip that they have could be a 32 gigabyte one if they had wanted it to be. Yeah, or maybe like two years ago or whatever. He's going to have lead time to like, you know, tooling and factor. Like, but Apple, again, that type of thing. Apple is in the position to do that, and they do it all the time. They will they will pay for the people to build the capacity that they're going to use to build their products yeah. and get the money back and throw these financial. They probably did it with uh, Taiwan Semiconductor to do the, the A8, I'm sure. Apple yeah. was paying billions and millions of dollars to, to make that happen. Yeah, I I think that a lot of these decisions are made two years in advance. But I think if they wanted to go sixteen to thirty two baseline, that's the type of change they could make a little yeah, bit. Yeah, because it's not that not that far. You just look at the Android phones. Right, a lot of Android phones sell. A lot of them sell with you know this much flash in them. Like again, you know, discounting the SD card slots and everything like that. It's not so far outside the realm that if anything would be outside the realm, it would be like these crazy super retina iMac displays that are probably in short supply. And that one, you really can say, look, you know, no matter how much you pay, we're just barely able to make these now, but 16 to 32, that is old tech. Android's been shipping with it for years and years and lots of phones. So it was within reach. Yeah. All right. Let's call it a show. Uh, anybody, I can't imagine that there's anybody who's, who listened to this episode who has not already read your review, but if, if, or pretended to read it or pretended to read it, but if you haven't, you should, uh, you can do it the right way. The right way is to read it on the website. That's the, the canonical version. But I bought a, a copy for iBooks anyway because I wanted it to be a bestseller. Yeah, you got a long way to go to uh, make up for how many shirts I bought from you. <laughs> <laughs> My eBooks are cheap, man. It's all $30 for one of these books. <laughs> buy copies for your whole family. Great, great Christmas gift idea. Right. Don't, don't use family sharing. Just buy a copy for everybody. Um, yeah, kids will love it. Uh, always a pleasure. I don't know. It's funny because now we have a mini tradition of of you coming on after your your. your yeah, now, you, ne- you never asked me on any other time, so now you're gonna have to uh, actually think of some other reason to talk to me. I'm gonna have to think of another reason. To you should have had me on to, to argue with you about file name extensions instead of that other Canadian guy. Oh God! Well, then we wouldn't have had an argument, would we? No, but I I would I felt like that was a case where I heard you were on my side of the debate and I felt like I could have done a better job yeah, fending, probably. fending off that foreigner. Uh yeah, anytime we get into an argument about metadata, you, I'm I'm going to word it far less eloquently as you. There were some stronger arguments that you could have deployed. Anyway, I'll be on the <laughs> podcast with that joker sometime and we'll have it out. <laughs> that's what you get. I mean, that's what you get when you're from Canada.